We're ready, Mayor. Dave? Yes. Welcome, everyone, to the Lawrence City Commission meeting for oh, November 15th. Sorry. To the right place. Uh, first, we'll have some explanation from Porter Arneal about how our meetings work. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I just have a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting tonight. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you. Now we'll have some explanation about how public comment works. A few notes on public comment. When the mayor calls for public comment, individuals speaking in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Individuals will be called on in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, we will approve the agenda. Uh, are there any uh, motions to change the agenda or approve? Move to approve the agenda. Second. second. <clears throat> I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Next, we'll have a proclamation uh, for Small Business Saturday. Oh, oh there she is. Hello, Mayor and Commissioners and staff. Um, I'm Sally Zagrai, Executive Director of Downtown Lawrence, Inc., and I am here to receive the proclamation about Small Business Saturday that is coming up um, this weekend on November 26th. Um, shopping local is important for a healthy community and a local economy. And Small Business Saturday is a tradition dedicated to supporting small businesses and celebrating communities across the country. Small businesses in help ensure that local economies stay strong and vibrant. Local small business owners are here 365 days a year, providing goods, services, and excellent personalized customer service to our community. They're the corner stores that create jobs, the businesses that help build our economy, and the mom and pop shops whose very present presence makes a neighborhood your neighborhood. Small businesses are an important part of the ambiance and appeal of our downtown and our city as a whole. Downtown business owners are supremely generous. They support dozens of community organizations via charitable giving, fundraising events, and sponsorships year-round. Local businesses keep money in our local economy. They pay property, payroll, and sales taxes. They employ local residents and help them support their families. They provide goods and services that all of us need and benefit from. They contribute to our beautification, seasonal plantings, decorations, and sidewalk maintenance. 
Shopping small and shopping local on Small Business Saturday, as well as every other day of the year, is a great way for people to help their friends and neighbors. Small businesses are the backbone of our economy and the glue that holds communities together. Thank you for this proclamation that celebrates and supports locally owned and independent businesses. Thank you so much. And now with that... Whereas the city of Lawrence recognizes the value and importance of small businesses to the health and sustainability of the local, regional, and national economy, and whereas Lawrence's local small businesses help preserve the uniqueness of the community and give us a sense of place in our community should work and empower the support businesses owned by our friends and neighbors, share joy, and shop small year-round. And whereas Downtown Lawrence, Inc. participates in the nationally recognized Small Business Saturday that takes place on Saturday, November 26th, and all holiday season long, to encourage residents to support the local business community for First, as part of their annual holiday shopping traditions. And whereas Downtown Lawrence, Inc. and the City of Lawrence are both working to create an environment which is safe, fun, and festive for the holiday shopping and entertainment season. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim November 26, 2022, as Small Business Saturday. Uh, jump, jump. Oh, yeah. Turtle? <laughs> you don't want to see that. <laughs> oh. No, no. Where are my roller skates? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. See you later. I hope you're watching next door. Keep track. We are. We will be monitoring Keep track. the meeting Thank you. Um, at the DLI annual mixer so people no. know what's happening. That brings us next to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Is there anyone in the room? Who would like to make general public comment? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers, and um, I just want to say at the next meeting, I think it's when you're all going to be uh, voting on the next mayor and vice mayor. Um, last year, public comment was not open during that, and I think we should open up um, the when we vote on, when y'all vote on mayor and vice mayor i think the public should be allowed the opportunity to weigh in on who they want to be mayor and vice mayor thank you thank you any other public comment in the room hi my name is nicole and i just wanted to say that i wore this shirt today as a friendly reminder to courtney also heard you talking about who's carpooling a bit ago. Nice GMC Yukon. You continue to drive by yourself to work. Thank you. Hello, councils. My name is James Richard. I'm here on a homeless behalf. You, as I said last week, I believe that Johnny don't like all kinds. It should be shut down because all the incidents that have been happening there. 
Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? We know where your priorities are because uh, while I support the concept of businesses taking stands against the city, as a common practice or as a, as a normal practice, we do not engage in discussion or comment on public comment. You engaged the shit out of that last week. You know Rick was on public comment time. All those people were on public comment time. But you don't engage public comment. Find it interesting how a business owner can come in here. I'm a business owner. My business isn't big enough, I guess. Or isn't impactful enough, or isn't historic enough. I don't know what it is. I've come in here and talked calmly a number of times about my experiences with the police and about the false prosecution they put me through and the way they hide evidence and the way they don't disclose the facts the way they need to be disclosed. This all started out with me walking around out on the streets with a camera handing cops these pamphlets that said, chill the hell out, man. That's all they said. They said, basically, chill the hell out. We have rights. I'll leave them here if anybody wants to see them. There's a few. I didn't monetize anything. I didn't publicize stuff, guys. You realize that? When I first started, I wasn't publicizing videos. I brought, brought them to you guys. I met with one or two commissioners. I've met with one or two community police review board members. Nothing. So I radicalized a little bit, get a little wild. Press the things a little bit. I find it interesting that nobody had the nuts to put me in cuffs. And I got to thinking about that. I made a mistake announcing my intention to find a reason to sue you guys. Because what that did was that said, everybody don't talk, don't give him anything. And it was funny, after the statute of limitations expired, I started getting information that proved, okay? Yeah. Your chief doesn't want to talk, won't answer anything with me. You guys don't engage, don't answer anything with me. It's funny, those that talk and answer and talk honestly and open with me don't have a problem with me. I don't have a problem with the sheriff's department. Why don't you talk to them about how many times I've been in there and sat down and talked to people? If they want to be obstinate and rude, I'll, I'll leave a little upset. But you're going to talk to people in there that I've had nice conversations with and they've taken some actions as a result. while you guys ignored it. Lawrence Police Department had another officer decertified today in a summary revocation by the Kansas Sea Post because of misbehavior, because of misconduct that continues to happen on this shift right now on the street. But you ignore David Shane Williams. Is there any other further public comment in the room? Is there anyone online who would like to offer public comment? Raise your digital hand so we can see you. Mayor, I am not seeing any raised hands in the Zoom. Let's give a split second and make sure. All right, thank you. Everyone. 
that brings us next to our consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Is there anything a commissioner would like to remove from the consent agenda? Um. Hmm. The Ahab letter? Anybody worried about that oh, Ahab letter? Ahab letter? No, I'm, I'm, I read it. I'm, okay. okay, all right. Okay, I'll pull the Ahab letter then. Now let's go. do that. <laughs> that is D-A-B. Uh, is there anything that a member of the public would like to remove from the consent agenda? D-2-A. Is there anything else a member of the public in the room would like to remove? Yeah, can you do D7A and D8C? D8C? Yeah, the one about law enforcement and mental health. And the other one's about the Okay. Is there anyone online uh, who sees an item they would like to remove from the consent agenda? <laughs> Mayor, I do not see any hands raised in Zoom. All right, thank you. Move to approve the consent agenda with the exceptions of D2A as an apple, D7A as an apple, D8B as in boy, and D8C as in cat. Second. <laughs> I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 I think that brings us to D2A. D2A. Apologize for the delay there. In other boards, they take precedence and do the staffs first. Um, your community police review board, they have nothing to do. Because the only time that this community police review board will ever get to see anything, and you get minutes every time from them that they're doing nothing. <coughs> and again, have you guys actually gone back and reviewed and watched the meetings? They have nothing to do. Because it's designed that way, guys. And you're going to keep getting minutes that show we're just talking about well, the policy committee wants to talk to the police department about policy. The policy committee wants to talk to Lockhart, wants Lockhart to tell them information, but Lockhart can't talk about certain things. And when they talk about accountability, if you hear in one of these meetings, I think it was the September one, where Lockhart said, well, we'll look into that, meaning the police department, and if there's an issue, we'll do this, and we'll do this. This is what happens when you put the police department in charge. Lockhart runs these meetings now. He basically runs them for them. And he guides them along. There's a couple that push back a little bit, but he guides them along. And you guys keep allowing it to happen and, and still, and still, they can't investigate use of force complaints. They can't, even though board members on that board recognize policy violations, 
Ms. Bickford has called it out twice. She's called out two different notice policy violations that obviously she's picked up on, but none of you can and neither can the police department. It's really sad to, to see that. And I think it's just, it, we're down to court action, really? Is that where we're, where we're at, Brad? Is, is, I mean, you're a lawyer. Is that the only way to change this? Is that the only way to change this, is court action? Can none of you guys do anything? Minutes. You guys ought to watch these meetings before you read these minutes. Any comments from commissioners or questions? None. Uh, public comment on this item? Yes, I don't think it's fair for someone to, to jaywalk to get a ticket, not a warning. Yes, I had gotten a ticket just for that and not a warning. On right in front of a stop bus, a restaurant, matter of fact, this past coming a week. You got an actual ticket for jail? Yeah. They, they Could you address us, please? Excuse me, sir. He's speaking to us at this time. I don't think it's fair for somebody to jaywalk to get a ticket, not a warning. Not anywhere else. Yeah, probably got a, got a warning. But really, a ticket just for that? Somebody that is not, don't have no benefits to pay for it has to pay 163 total for a ticket for Jake walking, really? I mean, how is this country is going to change or get better if stuff like this keep happening in this town or even worse? I just want to know what you guys stand in all this. Thank you. Excuse me, you're being very disruptive. Y'all have a good time. We're going to help some people here. <laughs> is there any, if you want to keep disrupting, is there any public comment in the room? Is there any public comment online? Mayor, I am not seeing any raised hands. Any further discussion among commissioners? No. <clears throat> Just real quick, I know that we are in the process of having a review of our boards and commissions. And one of the things that when I was the chair of the Human Relations Commission that I stress, and I know that the that the committee is going to work on this, is how do we build an onboarding orientation process that empowers and helps those who apply to be on boards and commissions understand what authority they have, but also to have the innovation and ingenuity to do those things. Oftentimes, it goes without saying, you have multiple types of individuals that sits on boards and commissions. They sit on boards and commissions to pad their resume. They sit on boards and commissions because they feel like they want to be a part of something, but don't necessarily know how to utilize their strengths and their tools to do that. Oftentimes, then you have those who sit on boards and commissions because they do want to challenge and be involved and be a voice, a subject matter or content matter expert that helps to advise our governing body. That's what we're mixed with. So our boards and commissions are mixed backs and nuts. Hopefully with the work that we're doing with the committee to help condense this, they'll 
that'll help give us a streamline that's not going to change the type of individuals that we have on a board of commission. We know that there are you know, CPRB is one of many. You can say what you want to say about how the ordinance was created in order to do the work that was prescribed for it to do. It is up to those individuals that sit on that board and commission to do that work. I I sat right there in that chair. Stop interrupting, sir. You need to leave now. You're interrupting. You need to leave now. You could direct each one. You need to leave now. You could direct the chief to. You need to leave now. Each one of you could direct it. Now. We don't have a dictatorship. We have a democracy. If we have within our code, if we have in our codes to have boards and commissions to be an advisory board or to be an advisory to provide recommendations to our government body, we need to empower those boards and commissions to do such things. And we empower those boards and commissions to do such things by having individuals who are on those boards to do it. It was very difficult as a chair to have individuals on a commission that didn't want to do that work. And as a chair, I took on that responsibility of going to my fellow commissioners and saying, you're not cutting it. So I either need you to step it up or you need to find another board of commission to stand on. So it is, it, it's one of those things that it, it can be, we've all served on boards and commissions. Folks who have applied to it, we've, it's either your first time or you've done it before. But it's a matter of what do you plan to bring to that. And as a commission, as a governing body, if we start dictating to our boards and commissions what they need to be bringing to us, then the question becomes, why do we have the boards and commissions to begin with? So I mean, we're, in a di we're not in a dicey situation. We're reviewing. We're re we are reimagining and trying to revitalize what the relationship between governing body, community, and different, um, different boards and entities that advise us on the very things that we do as elected by those in the community. So for someone, I mean, you can take a snapshot and try to paint a whole picture with it, but you're not gonna have the whole story. So we are in a position that we can drive that work, but I would like to see that work be done by the very boards and commissions that do it. So. Having been on both sides of the mirror, you know, I don't have the I don't have the answer or the solution right now. But I know two things. I know what I can do from this position as a policy person, and I know what I've done in that position as an elected, I mean, as an appointed individual on a board and commission. And oftentimes, we need our board and I need we need the individuals who are sitting on those boards and commissions to actually do the work. And maybe we need to put something in the mechanism to, to remove those individuals. I don't know. I can't speak for that, but I'd like to hear more from the. I'd like to hear from our other commissioners. But I think a lot of this, it comes that the expectation is for us as commissioners to remove people and to move the work along. But again, that gets in the way of the very boards and commissions and those individuals that sit on those on those uh, sit in those positions to do that actual work. Thank you, Commissioner, for keeping us on task. I appreciate you. Any other discussion on this item? Yeah, I would just add that um, the Police Review Board, there's definitely 
continues to go through an evolution and with our new committee that's going to look at all these boards I think that's going to definitely help the situation but I just I looked at the the two um, reports that he referred to that Michael referred to and um, both of those they recessed into executive session to one was to discuss security measures two was to review a case of, of potential bias so to say they're not doing anything um, I think that that's um, not accurate not 100% accurate would we like for them to do more we'd I just want them to to follow you know what was set out in their original mission and they obviously are working on that but we are going through a huge change right now as as Commissioner Sellers pointed out and and um, that's the way we're going to continue I think we're moving on the right path any other discussion any motions we need a motion to receive those I don't know if we yeah. need a nope okay Good, that brings us to D7A. Hi, this is Chris Flowers, and um, in like the agenda packet, um, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the thing on me, but I wrote down something specific. Um, it's under section 3B, and it's describing, I guess, the, the vehicles on the property. It says, the vehicles in violation of section 9-615 of the city code, as amended, negatively affect the peaceful enjoyment and the investment of the neighboring property owners and are injurious to the health, safety, and welfare of the community. And um, my question is, um, you're, I guess they're in violation because they have um, cars that don't operate parked in their own driveway, but um, how does a car that doesn't run that is parked in a, a driveway negatively affect the peaceful enjoyment of neighbors more so than a car that does run when it's parked in the driveway? I mean, when both cars are just parked in a driveway, aren't they both basically performing the same function you know they're just being parked so I, I just I don't understand how how can a parked car affect some, your neighbor's um, ability to enjoy themselves in their own yard like or in their own property I mean like if if they get the car fixed and they get a light like they they go and get a registration tag and they put it on the tag or they put the tag on their vehicle now suddenly that vehicle's no longer ruining their enjoyment um i i think a, a law that says you can't have a car that's inoperable parked in your own driveway i think that's biased against poor people i mean there's probably people with garages i mean if you have a garage then you go and put your inoperable car in that and then suddenly it's okay i mean the, these kind uh, uh an ordinance like this where you can't have a, a car that doesn't work parked in your own driveway where a regular car can be parked i i don't think that's fair for um, for poor people or even middle income people. I mean, look at we have the these um, housing costs increase and our homelessness is increasing. Why are we enforcing these kind of ordinances that that disproportionately affect um, lower income people? So I, I just want to. I guess my question is: is how does a a parked car neg negatively affect the, the peaceful enjoyment of neighbors. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment on this item? 
Is there any public comment on this item online? Raise your digital hand. Mayor, there are no raised hands. Thank you. Uh, commissioners, any uh, discussion or comments? Nope. I think to make the assumption that only poor middle class individuals have inoperable cars in front of their in front of their homes is disrespectful to low income and moderate income individuals. My mother lives in a moderate income community in Wichita, Kansas, has a beautiful lot that plants flowers. And she had a neighbor that lived adjacent to her who had trash and cars and other appliances in the front and on the side of their, their home. And when you have a community that takes pride in their neighborhood and looks out for one another and does the due diligence to keep their house maintained and painted and, and good because they live in a low income neighborhood or they live in a lower middle class neighborhood and they're often treated a certain way because of that within itself as if low-income and moderate-income individuals don't take pride in their home. So I think we're making some inferences here as it relates to a code violation that's meant to benefit everybody, whether you're low-income, moderate-income, or you live in a HOA or higher-income neighborhood. The idea is that if things are inoperable, your home is not, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be there, and, and that there are laws to protect. It's the health and safety piece of it. So I, I, I understand where you're coming from, Mr. Flowers. I think your argument was a little bit jaded in the sense that you put this all on um, someone being poor. You're making an assumption about an individual that may not necessarily be true, but this is a public health safety. And so you, we have ordinances to protect the public health of not just the individual, but also um, the community in which that individual lives in. And so for it to be safe, welcoming, and secure, that means that a house should be able to maintain that. And so I do believe this gentleman has been asked several times since 2018 to remove these items. If they're not in use and they're inoperable, then maybe they need to go away. So I understand where you're coming from, but unfortunately, I, I, I feel like you, your argument missed a bit um, when you made the assumption of a, of a class or a, not even a class, a, a, a population of individuals that are unfairly and disproportionately um, aligned and associated with this that's not necessarily not true. Any other conversation? Thank you, Commissioner Sellers. Any motions on this item? Move to adopt resolution number 7457. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Um, I have D8B and I had D8C written down, but I don't see a D8C. Did I yeah, do something D8C out? is the wellness yeah. stuff. <clears throat> oh, okay. Just add it. D8B. <laughs> that was yours. Uh, that was mine. Um, I just wanted to make sure, um, indeed, we we're uh, just receiving this um, but I was concerned that they've discussed this at great length and we haven't answered them much uh, we have a, a somewhat said uh, we are reevaluating our boards that's true um, they have some very specific concerns I wanted to be sure if we needed to say something specific to staff uh, Leah that that we were giving you direction um, uh, 
again, not to open a can of worms here, but I just didn't want this to go by the wayside without um, some comment being made to the commissioners who are working very hard and have done so much work uh, to make sure that they know that we um, have, have seen their discussions and, and we understand what they're asking us. Is staff available? know that Leah is on the, oh, the call related to staff, but I, um, I can perhaps um, um, indicate that staff's intention with this is just to simply relay the recommendation as provided by the board. So I think, um, you know, if the commission wished to discuss this either now or at a future date, um, th that would that would be up to the commission mm -hmm. if you would want to schedule it on your agenda for some further discussion or um, or some um, further direction that you would have for staff in that and we would be happy to help facilitate that. Thank you, Diane. Um, I, I appreciate that sometimes when we when uh, they want to make some new rules to um, boards, they make a recommendation, but they may be somewhat uh, parted uh, and they wanted something from us. Um, so um, is the best thing for me to ask uh, perhaps a timeline or um, a, a promise that this will indeed be uh, rolled up in our discussions with the boards? I, I just want to be sure that I give them an answer and that staff has the direction they need to follow up or that we have a timeline. Um, yeah, again, I, th I think that's up to um, you all if you want to roll that into your larger discussion about advisory boards um, and commissions in your review of that during that time, or if there's anything specific that um, you all wish to put on your agenda to have a discussion to do anything related to the current code of this board. And I think... Um, you know, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board is aware of the larger issue that is being contemplated as well. And um, and I see that the, the chair, Monty Sokup, is here as well. Uh, he might wish to comment on the discussion that the board's had on this. All right. Um, if uh, commissioners don't mind, I'll go ahead and ask Monty if you'd like to speak. Uh, this is Monty Sokup, actually as chair of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. I don't need to make any comment, but I'm certainly willing to answer any questions. Uh, regarding the letter and I think our intent primary intent was just to make the commission aware of it because we've had this concern on our board and it's it's uh, become a bit of an issue with the board so we wanted to get it <clears throat> off of the plate of the bo that board and onto your plate as you work through the process of reorganizing the, the boards so I think that's all we were intending to do thank you so. I appreciate you being here and I appreciate um, the concerns that you've all raised uh, any other questions from commissioners? Go ahead. I was going to say I have questions, I have comments, but yeah. Oh, okay. Any questions? Yes, question. Go ahead. No, go <laughs> ahead. Um, I think this is a, definitely a good topic to continue a conversation on, based on what um, is in the in the memo. Uh, I do uh, think it might be better to have it as a comprehensive conversation, along with what we're doing with our committees and boards right now. That that new committee that we just formed, and have it be part of that conversation, because I know part of that is going to look at having across the board um, rules, so to speak, for how the boards operate, as well as who's on the board, who's not on the board. So that's where I would like to have that conversation. That's pretty much what I was going to say too. I mean, it, it highlights that this is one of the many committees that was created by its own resolution with its own rules and its own, you know, 
own uniqueness, you know, and of course the makeup of the board is created by that resolution <laughs> and it, it says exactly what it is supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and so the only way to change it is to, to redo that resolution. But, you know, I think as we look at all our committees and we look to organize them um, in a more comprehensive way, hopefully have them all in one spot with the same rules and the same understandings and not a bunch of random resolutions around, um, I think will be in a good shape going forward. So I look forward to that committee going ahead. Certainly understand, you know, the issue, but I don't think trying to address it before we address the overall um, reconstitution of boards makes any sense at this time. Any other questions before we do public comment? Uh, let's make sure there's no public comment on this item. Is there any public comment on this item in the online room? On <laughs> raise your digital hand. Here, there are no raised hands. All right, thank you. Um, we've already had a couple comments. Did Did you have something you were cogitating on, Commissioner Sellers? Mm. I was, but. I will. I'll. I'll pass it. To, I'll pass it this time. Okay. Thank you. Um, any other questions or conversation? Um, Commissioner Sukup, again, thank you for coming. And if they didn't see us or we don't somehow get reported on, I hope you'll pass on that we do indeed watch your meetings. We we are aware of the situation, um, but. Yeah, as the other commissioners have have noted, we we would like this to be kind of taken up in a, in a group setting. Um, with that, I hope that isn't impeding your work too much. Um, and and if staff um, needs anything from us previous to those discussions, I hope they'll let us know. Any other conversation or discussions? Any motions? Let's just receive. Oh, were we just receiving? Oh, thank you. And then D8C. Hi, this is Chris Flowers, and this is about hiring, I guess, a, a, a full-time um, wellness coordinator for the police. Um, some of the reasons given that we are hiring this position is that why the cops need this um, I guess this mental health um, um, help is that, um, like it, it gave reasons, and some of the reasons are the COVID pandemic, negative uh, perception of law enforcement, witnessing coworkers in need of support while experiencing personal hardships such as divorce, working with depleted staffing, public protest. And my, I'm just gonna say, Aren't a lot of, I mean, not, this isn't just police that are dealing with this. Uh, aren't a lot of your employees dealing with this? Where I work, um, we're, we're, we're going to be closing at 10 tonight because we don't have enough staffing. So, um, and like witnessing coworkers in need of support while experiencing personal hardships such as divorce. Do, do none of your garbage men have this problem? So my question is, um, 
why can't, if we're hiring this for the police, um, do any of the, your other city departments have a position like this? And also, um, it says, um, and I think it was 170 some thousand dollars a year for this position. And I, I believe it's only good, like we're only getting the funding for two years. And my, my big question is, do you all plan on keeping the position after two years? And if so, where's the money gonna come from for this? And also, don't do, do your cops currently not have mental health with their health insurance? Like, do, are you providing? I'm, I'm assuming, because where I work, I get health insurance and I'm, it also covers like mental health. So why do you need to hire the cops their own full time? I guess sounds like a mental health professional. Um, if if they have it covered under health insurance, like are they still going to be going to their own therapist? I mean, th this just seems like it could be a big waste of money um, if if it's something you're not providing for your other employees. I I think. If, if you go through with this, I'd like it that the other employees can also use this, this um, mental health coordinator. And, but personally, I, I think I would just let the cops um, use their own like, mental health professional like through healthcare. So it just seems kind of a waste of money to me. Thank you. Thank you. Sergeant Fogarty of the Police Department, I did not present or bring a formal presentation, but I'm here to answer any questions you have on the uh, COPS 2022 Law Enforcement Mental Health and Wellness Act grant that we were awarded through the Federal Government COPS um, Act. Thank you. Would you be able to provide just a brief overview of of the grant? How long do you know? Like how long it's been around? Is this new legis federal legislation grant dollars that are, are that were available? Just high level, quickly. Yes. Uh, the COPS half office um, focuses on different things at different years. This year, this grant was focused on law enforcement, mental health, uh, specifically for suicide prevention. So we submitted the grant. This is a two-year grant. It's fully funded to pay for that position for two years. Um, at that time, we'll reapply for it. And as far as the grant proposal, since I know <laughs> we received it in our packet, can you share the reason, the rationale for going with the yoga training and, and with why you took the approach of that specific model and, and strategy with these grant dollars? Yes, we looked for the wellness coordinator because currently we have a various programs that are available for law enforcement officers in the city of Lawrence. There's peer support, we have a chaplain program. We do not have a yoga for first responders, which is uh, fact-based, evidence-based, to help us reduce the stress that we are under and also helps us during critical incidents. So this program is to bring a wellness coordinator to bring it under one person, one point of contact, so that person can be contacted by the officers and employees. It's just not for our officers, it's for the employees at the Lawrence Police Department and their family members. So it's at least, sorry, lessens the confusion as to where to go to get support and assistance that's offered through the city. Um, and then also fact-based programs for officers to support their mental health and wellness. And then lastly, quickly, just a question for city staff. I know most employers do have EAP programs just for the sake of, for the records. 
does uh, does the city's EAP program provide mental health counseling, behavioral health services? It, it does. Uh, it, it, we have. Um we have very uh, updated, and uh, this is a high priority for us. Um, it's available to police department employees as well as all the other employees of the city. Uh, our medical insurance program also covers mental health services. Um, so this is in addition to that. Okay. So you said you're going to go for funding um, after the two years. Yes. Is that correct? So this is, can be an ongoing grant. Yes. Availability. If we don't get it, what happens? So we're going to, it's fact-based. We have to meet benchmarks. So okay. we are going to use those. If we have to, we will also in 2025 then we put a budget request to continue the program. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Any other questions? <clears throat> All right. Um, did we do public comment on this in general? We did? No, I did not okay. ask. <laughs> Is there a public comment on this item in general in the room? Not seeing any. Is there any public comment online? Mayor, I am not seeing any hands raised. Thank you. Uh, any further discussion among commissioners? I appreciate the, um, that we, I, I'm excited that we were awarded this grant and I think anyone who has ever had a loved one or who has personally um, suffered with um, or had to endure or process through um, their own mental health knows that one size doesn't fit all. And oftentimes it takes more than one approach to address one's mental health and behavioral health needs. So anything that we can provide um, to those who are public servants and are, are providing public safety to our community and we can do that in a way that's a grant fund that doesn't re that doesn't um, pull money from our general funds. I'm here to support it, and um, I'm excited that we're going to have this for the next two years, and hopefully we'll be able to secure that with our outcomes to secure additional funding as we continue to, you know, for further years. So comprehensive uh, mental health um, addressing that is important, and I'm glad that we're doing that with those who um, who are facing some of the most um, dangerous situations or, or complex and um, high intense situations. So thank you for the presentation and, and I, I support this 100%. Thank you. Any other comments? Yeah. Any motions? Uh, I would. I agree. Great program. Um, thanks for getting the, the award. And I'll move to accept the 2022 Law Enforcement Mental Health and Wellness Act grant and proceed with the hiring of a full-time wellness coordinator. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to our regular agenda item. Our first item is to conduct a public hearing regarding the establishment of a tax increment financing TIF district. Oh, there she is. <laughs> Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Britt Kremkano, Economic Development Director. Uh, tonight we have several speakers to talk with you about the Crossing Project. Uh, we have Kevin Wimpy from Gilmore and Bell, who's going to talk to you about this particular step in the TIF process. We have Monty Sukup 
from KU Endowment, who is going to be talking about the project itself, as well as their request. Uh, we have Tom Denaway from Baker Tilly, who is online. Uh, Baker Tilly is the third party financial consultant doing the analysis for us on this that is required by TF, both the feasibility and but for. And this is, uh, the, the studies are specific to the project area plan one, which will come before you later. Um, so he's just gonna talk on a very high level to give you a um, idea of the financial climate, if you will. And then the, specific, the specifics will come back with you when you consider the project plan for area one. Um, we will then open it up for questions and answers. Uh, I do believe we have a few people online also for questions. We have Andy Entz with uh, Municipal Services and Operations to talk about infrastructure, especially technical issues along those lines. Uh, we have uh, Rebecca Buford with uh, Tenants to Homeowners, I believe, that's also online who can speak to the uh, proposal for affordable housing. And then Leah um, Rosalind, with the city's uh, housing administrator, she, if at all possible, will join us online to talk also about the affordable housing proposal. She had another family commitment, so she was gonna kind of be in and off and on. So at this point, I'm just gonna turn it over to Kevin Whippy, and we'll get the, the everything going. Thank you, Britt. Good evening, uh, Mayor Commissioners. Nice to see you all again. I'm Kevin Wimpy with Gilmore and Bell, uh, joined by my colleague, Sarah Gonath here. And we represent the city as bond council and also uh, represent the city on economic development matters such as these. Uh, so you recall we were with you a couple months ago when this commission took the first step to call this public hearing tonight by resolution and went over in a lot of detail how tax increment financing as well as community improvement districts work. Uh, so I'll do a very brief recap and sort of frame tonight's discussion as far as where we're at in the procedure uh, and then step aside for the rest of the presenters. Um, so again, TIF is used, uh, the, the primary function is that it's an economic development tool used at this body's discretion to capture uh, property tax growth in the specific geographic area. And only certain eligible mills are eligible for that capture. There are 29 and a half mills that are ineligible or shielded from TIF, and 28 of those mills belong to the school district. Uh, those captured taxes can be redirected to pay certain eligible costs under the TIF Act, and those are largely limited to horizontal infrastructure, site work, and so forth, and vertical private development uh, is ineligible for TIF dollars. Uh, you recall from the discussion a couple months ago, as well as the calendar that's in your packet, that TIF is a fairly lengthy process. It takes several months at the short end to go from start to finish, uh, and it's also a two-step process uh, at a very high level. Uh, with the first step being creation of the TIF district itself, and the second step being consideration of a TIF project plan that relates to a project area within the TIF district. Uh, the legal effect of those, again, is that formation of the TIF district sets the geographic area uh, within which that increment's captured, and it also sets the base year assessed value, uh, which means that the future growth above that value is what is captured uh, to be redirected for eligible project costs. The legal effect of uh, step two, which would be further down the road, but adopting a TIF plan, is that it allows funds that have accrued in the city's TIF fund to be expended for those project costs. Uh, and it also starts the 20-year clock that limits TIF capture and use of TIF funds to 20 years after the effective date of an individual project plan. <clears throat> so again, tonight, tonight's discussion is about step one. 
holding the public hearing and considering an ordinance establishing the TIF district. That ordinance contains findings setting forth that this uh, area would be an eligible area for use of TIF and also again sets the geographic boundaries of the TIF district. Should you choose to proceed after tonight, uh, we would proceed down step two, which involves a lot more of the business terms, drafting of a de development agreement that sets forth the performance milestones and the, really the substantive parts of the business deal, uh, as well as a TIF plan that would be considered um, if we stayed on schedule that's in the calendar in your packet, it would be towards the end of the first quarter of 2023. Um, some of the next presenters will provide some insight into those development terms, and there's also a term sheet in your packet um, so it gives you that visibility as to where we think this is headed based on the city's economic development policy and the details shared so far by the developer. But again, I want to focus tonight's discussion on step one being establishment of the TIF district. Uh, so with that, I'll step aside, and I think Monty's up next, but I'll happy to uh, address any questions you might have on those aspects. Thanks. Thank you. Any questions? Hi, I'm going to get my uh, presentation up. <clears throat> There. All right, there we go. Thank you. All right, well, my name is Monty Sokup. I'm here in this capacity representing KU Endowment and the West District Improvement Company, who is the applicant. I'm really excited to be here. We've been working on this project starting in 2018. Um, at the beginning of 2019, we hired Brailsford and Dunlavey, which is a national firm that works on campus edge developments. And to help guide us through a process of what something uh, might look like, we started asking the university, um, you know, we have this land asset on West Campus, and what could we do with that land asset to support the university and the city of Lawrence? Um, Brailsford and Dunlavey led us through a visioning process. Uh, we engaged the city, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, KUCR, Center for Research at the University, uh, the KU Innovation Park, which uh, the city is also a partner in, as well as KU people and uh, the KU Endowment trustees who, uh, who basically manage our organization. Um, so where we landed really uh, was on one key purpose. Really, the overall purpose was to attract companies and researchers and entrepreneurs that aligned with KU's strengths and opportunities and enhanced uh, KU's research portfolio. As you may know, KU is one of uh, about 60 AAU R1 schools, uh, about 30 of which of those are private schools, and KU's been in that uh, group since its inception. And um, it is hard as a public university to stay in that group because it's based on research. Uh, one of the primary metrics is research to faculty, tenured faculty, and because we offer a comprehensive program, it's hard to compete with schools that don't have comprehensive education. So our ratio is hard to maintain. And that really requires us to draw research uh, if we want to maintain that comprehensive program. So uh, what KU really came to us and said is, you know, can we draw companies and research dollars to the city of Lawrence? Um, that really fit, felt or fit nicely into the KU Innovation Park program that's already a part, partnership between the city, the county, the university, and the chamber. Um, 
that 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 organization has uh, three buildings on West Campus. Um, they have 62 companies and 590 direct jobs out of those three buildings, um, with a $35 million uh, combined annual payroll. They bring a lot of dollars and a lot of good jobs to the city of Lawrence. Uh, so what we really wanted to do is try to accelerate that uh, and accelerate that growth. And you may also know that they opened a they opened their third building in August, and they are already 100% leased out and looking at their fourth building. So if that's what we wanted to do, we came out with these, kind of came up with these, uh, in, uh, these outcomes. We needed to tie that brand closely to KU because that's a national brand that's recognized across the country. Uh, the crossing could be anywhere. The crossing at KU puts us directly here in Lawrence. Uh, we want those key elements. Uh, we want to define the edge condition and the architectural standards so we have a first-class development and have the placemaking and branding to go with that. Uh, we want to engage the market and obviously our alumni and, of course, Lawrence, the community of Lawrence. And then ultimately, we want to have some kind of return on that project, ultimately for the university. So as we uh, Sorry to jump in here, Monty. I just want to make sure we do we need open the public hearing. I didn't remember us opening the public oh, hearing. We did not. Oh, we did not. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Monty. I'll pause. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize without Sherry to poke me in the face. It's, it's uh, a good spot. Uh, do I have any? I don't know if we need a motion. I don't think we just need to open the public hearing. Thanks. Sorry. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I apologize, Monty. I'm sorry. No problem. Okay, so um, so we have these outcomes, and uh, what we really decided was that in order to accomplish this, that KU Endowment or our subsidiary uh, Wittick uh, needed to be the developer. If we handed this to an outside development company, they would come in and you know put a Walmart on the corner or whatever that made them money. We needed to be able to control the development so that it was strategic for the University of Kansas and the city of Lawrence. So we embarked on a master planning process. Uh, we hired Gastinger, Walker, and Gensler uh, out of Chicago, who's a well-known master planning uh, architectural firm, um, to help lead us through a uh, master planning process. What we quickly realized is what we have on West Campus is kind of an 80s-style research park. It's a monoculture of research. People come there, they drive their car there, they park the car, they go in and do their work, they get out, come out and go out of their car and they go home or they go to the, you know, wherever they're going after that. There's nothing else that occurs there. So in order to attract young researchers and entrepreneurs, and uh, we decided we needed a place where it was an ecosystem where we had multiple things to do. We had places to eat. We have a grocery store. We have places to live. We have daycare, high quality daycare. That was one of the primary things that we learned from KU Innovation Park is that we need high quality daycare in Lawrence. We have some, but there's just not enough. So we started down a path of, uh, you know, what does that look like in a real estate strategy? So this is where a real estate strategy. Um, we're gonna start at the corner of 21st and, and Iowa. Uh, we're going to take advantage of the existing research assets we have right there, which is exactly the opposite of what a developer probably would have done. They would have started at the corner of 23rd and Iowa because that's the most valuable piece of ground that we own, right? Highest trafficked intersection in the city. 
So we're gonna start up there and try to create density and create a really activated street along two, along Becker Drive there, that, uh, that brings those things close to the research. So you could literally walk out of a research building and across the street. It'd be like, uh, you know, if you think of a multi-studio that has their studio above one of the, house, one of the shops on Mass Street, they literally are above, they walk out their front doors on Mass and they could walk out and walk to the next door, right? So that's kind of the environment we were looking to create with some density uh, there. The other thing we had an opportunity to do was to create this greenway. We have, uh, and I'm gonna talk about this a little bit later, but we have a stormwater retention that we need to create. And the site really drains to where that number three number is there. So we have this opportunity to create a really nice public amenity and greenway uh, through this site. And finally, and this will be in future phases, as we develop this area here um, along Becker Drive, it will drive the value up even further for that corner uh, in the future. So that'd be you know, 10, 15 years down the road. And ultimately, we would love to see a connection directly to the main campus. So number five shows a connection to uh, what is now Irving Hill Road. And if you're not familiar with that, that's the one road that has the bridge over uh, Iowa Street. So after we had our, developed our real estate strategy, we did a market study to figure out what the Lawrence market could potentially absorb in like a five-year period. So we went out and we did that and we kind of came up with these assets of what can, what can be absorbed in our market because you don't want to flood the market and you don't want to also rob from other uh, assets that are in town. So with those two things in hand, uh, we started developing a pattern of streets and public amenities. So what this shows is the street pattern that we've developed. Uh, you can see there, we're coming off at 21st there, which would be signalized, and we're kind of straightening out uh, Becker Drive, so you would pull you right into the development and right down that kind of main street there. Um, you see the greenway here to the left, uh, which kind of surrounds the, uh, the detention basin and two uh, soccer fields which would be uh, turf soccer fields to replace some of the university fields. But we've also been talking with the city about leasing those over the summer because our rec services group at the university really doesn't have a lot of use over the summer. So we're talking to Derek about uh, how the city could use these on times that the university is not using them. Uh, this pattern of roads and streets also then creates lots. So we've created about a dozen pad site ready lots. Um, the plan here is that once those, well, since 1942, this ground has been tax exempt because it's been used for university use. So as soon as we create these lots and we have them leased, they will be leased to private asset class developers and will become taxable parcels in the city of Lawrence for the first time since 1942. So the project has a few hurdles and that's partly why we're here today. Um, it's an infill project. However, uh, there are two things that really have to be addressed before we can move forward. Uh, first, the sanitary sewer on an infill project, you would normally expect to be able to connect at the major arterial and connect to a sewer. And unfortunately, in this case, that is not the case. 
the existing sanitary sewer is at capacity. And uh, Andy and his group, basically in one of our first meetings, said, you can't add another building or another parking lot or impervious service to this area without addressing the sanitary sewer. So really the project from, I don't know if I can point here, does that show up on the? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so really normally we would have tried to connect right here at the line on uh, Clinton Parkway, but that line is insufficient, and so we're having to really run new sewer line all the way down Clinton Parkway to Atchison Creek and then south about 450 feet to get to a point where the city sewer can connect. So this is not a small line. It's 48 inch diameter pipe down here at Atchison Creek, 36 inches and a 36 inch bore that'll go under Clinton Parkway. And then a, a combination of 36 and 24 inch line over to the development. So it's about a half mile, a little over a half mile off site <clears throat> sanitary sewer that has to be developed. And uh, as we bid that project that came in about between two and a half and three million dollars of uh, <clears throat> off-site sanitary sewer improvement that we need to make. The other uh, obstacle or a challenge, I'll call it a challenge, was uh, the stormwater retention. Uh, so this, the university had created a dry basin down here uh, when they built Park and Ride, and it was intended to cover every, you know, take into consideration all the building inside the Becker Drive Loop. Uh, as you can see, we built KU Innovation Park, we built a structural testing lab outside that, and that stormwater detention basin was also at its capacity. So what we did is we decided we would try to uh, take our stormwater detention and have it a detention basin where it would hold water all the time and then have freeboard to create the, uh, the capacity we needed. And we designed this to cover all of the development from this point down here for the entire watershed up to almost 19th Street, uh, basically the ridge of that hill where Irving Hill goes across. So we've created a basin that has enough capacity to really cover this entire quarter section there. And we're gonna use that, that water feature as a public amenity as part of our park. They'll have trails and stuff around it. So this is the the, tra the tr public greenway amenity. Now this pond down here doesn't isn't quite the right size because this is an early rendering, and before we knew it was going to be four and a half acres. Um, this is probably about two acres, um, but we're creating this greenway that's going to connect the Lawrence Loop Trail system along Clinton Parkway to the to the university's Jayhawk Trail. If you're not familiar with that, that's an ADA accessible uh, trail across over the hill and down the other side through some buildings to get your ADA compliance on everything, but it does connect uh, the Lawrence Loop again up to really that intersection at 19th and Iowa where we have the tunnel to get you across. Uh, and we're taking a, gonna take advantage of that asset that was recently installed. This, uh, this will also serve as a place for, uh, for us to have public artwork and things like that along the trail. We've already engaged the Spencer Museum of Art and the School of Architecture to help us have students design and, and some of these uh, amenities that'll be along the trail to create some just interesting stopping places. I talked a little bit about Becker Drive and creating that density. Uh, again, we're gonna signalize 21st in Iowa and bring people right in. And the first couple of blocks will be uh, the street is going to be, you know, 
four lanes wide where the intersection is and all that. But as soon as we neck down, we're going to neck down and have on-street parking and create that density with zero setbacks and, and uh, deep, you know, like 18-foot deep sidewalks uh, to create that density and the activation along that street. This is a rendering of what that street might look like uh, from the sidewalk view. So you can see uh, the deep sidewalks and the angled parking and the storefronts. So we're trying to go from a suburban district at, Iowa, at 21st in Iowa to really an urban type of development with a lot higher density uh, on that street to really activate that. So this slide shows really the kind of assets we're looking at developing. So again, like I said, we're, we're developing the lots and then we're going out to the market to bring new asset class developers to town to build the vertical assets and own those. So what you see on the right side here is along Stewart Avenue. There's about five uh, pad sites there, might be four or five, depending on what our assets are. But we're thinking that that's primarily uh, more of our drive-through kind of uh, retail assets so if we had a burger place or a coffee place or a bank or something like that it might be over there because they have that drive-through capacity as we go to the west side of Iowa Street again we're moving more into that more densified type of environment the large building there is uh, planned to be a grocery store and uh, then these are you know like out out building or out parking pads you know, along the street. And then as we get down to this section, we're looking for that much higher density development. The yellow buildings are uh, apartment buildings. Um, we really plan to have a highly amenitized, high-end product there. We're specifically not targeting students. We're not wanting to compete with, you know, the university itself, obviously. Um, and uh, we are working with a with a residential developer and have you know very high interest in in that kind of product. And then finally, over here in the purple is our daycare, which I'm proud to tell you that we are uh, we've been working with the university and Hilltop is going to expand in that space. They currently serve <coughs> children two to five, and they're going to serve children. Uh, gosh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but yes, and taller. Three weeks to two years so they're infant to infant to two and it will really be a feeder school so the kids will go here and then graduate to the big school on the hill so they're going to add 138 uh this 138 student uh addition about a 17,000 square foot building and the beauty of that is it's right on the greenway uh and really right on the way to the KU Innovation Park So on the north side of Becker Drive, we're really looking at that to be where KU Innovation Park would expand their next several buildings. If you've seen their master plan, I think they have nine buildings in the master plan. Uh, so this would accommodate several of those. I think these buildings are actually shown quite a bit bigger than the buildings that, that they think about. But um, it gives you an idea. They would complete the other side of the north side of the street. Um, those would, uh, since that's an exempt entity and the university is exempt either one of those would be exempt so we kind of created this separation of exempt and non-exempt keeping the exempt uses on the north side uh, to the extent we can so we also plan to have those be mixed use 
So there would probably be a taxable part of that. They'd probably be condoed and have a taxable part on the mixed-use side on Becker Drive. I want to use the mouse. And then. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're here tonight for, well, let me stop there and ask if there are any questions about the development. And then we'll, development, and then we'll get into uh, what we're asking about tonight. Monty, real quick, you touched on the residential piece being a high-end residential that was not to infer with student housing. Can you go into a little bit more detail what you mean by that? Because I know in the application, you also have a line in here where you state, and which I assume that's why Rebecca's here, that there may be in a future phase bringing on affordable and workforce housing. So right. that specific piece that you just brought up in your presentation, what do you mean by high-end multifamily? Okay, so this would be... Uh a highly amenitized uh, apartment complex, you know, with a swimming pool, structured parking. It's going to be a zero setback, so it'll go all the way to the curb, probably five stories. Um, so that's just a, a kind of like a work like a work live. So essentially, anyone more like Hobbs Taylor or you know the stuff that's on New Hampshire. Gotcha. Uh, maybe even a, a little higher quality than that okay um and i will talk about the affordable housing component uh as when we go into the tiff any other questions i have i do kind of have one um i don't know if you need to go back this is probably fine that which you show on the other side of iowa i think you indicated there might be drive-through over there mm -hmm. um i think that's interesting that where I wonder why, um, and again, I compliment you on, on what you're doing on the west side. Um, I, what I've been talking about, and many communities do, five-minute or 20-minute neighborhoods where everything is available. But on the other side of the street, you have maybe what we would consider more a traditional drive-through businesses like that might be found on the rest of 23rd. How, how come you, you chose to do that? there next to an established neighborhood. Okay, so um, a couple <clears throat> things on that. We, uh, we're working on getting a right turn in off of Iowa Street. So KDOT has said that they would consider that, so, which would not draw us into the neighborhood. So there are two houses, I, believe me, I've looked at this. <laughs> there are two houses that uh, are on 21st Street before you get to Stewart Avenue. And we've been, uh, obviously we went through a public process, the uh, KU, you know, city agreement process, and we met with that neighborhood, and we are adding some traffic calming devices to defer, to try to keep traffic from going through that neighborhood, yeah. similar to what you have further down on 21st Street, where you create the bike, uh, bikeway. Um, and again, we're working on that right in off of Iowa that would not run traffic through that through that neighborhood. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions or? Okay, carry on. Okay, so really, uh, get to my right page here. Um, what what we're seeking tonight really is. Uh, you know, the public incentive part of this project. Um, we're looking for a, a tax increment financing district, which is shown here. The red outline is, would be the district. 
the blue shows the project area, which uh, Kevin said, you know, we'll talk about later, but that gives you an idea of what we're looking at. Um, the district really qualifies under um, uh, under the conservation clause of the TIF TIF program. The buildings that are in the existing buildings that are in this, over 50% of them are over 35 years old. Some of those are university buildings. Um, and as you'll, you may have seen, uh, the university has some of them on the demolition, uh, requesting demolition uh, through the Board of Regents. So uh, that's how, we're, how, the, how the district qualifies. Um, we're requesting a 95% TIF and a one and a half percent CID district. So that's really the what the hearings involving. So um, as we went through the the process with uh, with Britt and everyone, the uh, city economic development policy requires if you're building housing. It has a requirement for adding affordable housing. So the way uh, the way the current the way that's listed is, is it makes an assumption that you're building vertical assets, which KU Endowment and Wittig is not building any vertical assets. So it says you need to have a certain percentage of whatever you're building be affordable. So our project really is just the infrastructure, and we're not building that. So the code really is code the policy is almost impossible to apply to what we're doing. So um, we certainly recognize a need for affordable housing in Lawrence. Uh, that's probably exemplified by me being on the board. <laughs> so what we decided to do is try to come up with an alternative plan. So what we thought we could do was to essentially contribute to the Lawrence Community Housing Trust about an acre and a half of land in our development in the planned area of our development. Um, so what we're looking at here is in the second, uh, or in future phases, uh, this area over here to the left, which has the blue, is really planned to be residential. So what we're proposing is that we would gift an acre and a half, which is really enough for 13 R5 lots, if that makes any sense. And uh, you know, with the affordable housing component in the Lawrence, they, they they can have double density in that, so they can really make 26, you know, for sale products or whatever they're doing. Um, so that's our general, that's our basic proposal. We don't have the details worked out on that. We certainly would uh, love to work with Rebecca and tenants to homeowners to figure out what those details look like and where that would fall within this, uh, this general area of the housing that we plan to develop. Um, the value of that ground, if you, if you take an R5 lot, and about the average value of an R5 lot in the city is around $80,000, the gift would be about a million dollar gift to the land trust. I think there are a couple prime, or large advantages uh, to doing this. Um, well, let me talk about the disadvantage of the existing plan. If you require, private developers to build affordable housing, you don't necessarily get the product you want. They're gonna build the product that they can afford to put in their project, and that's usually studios and one-bedroom apartments. We see that in LIHTC projects all the time. Mm -hmm. 
um, and it doesn't necessarily meet the need of the community. The second disadvantage of that is their 30-year affordability. So in 30 years, you end up with a cliff where you're putting X number of people back out on the street or you have to replace those units. So our proposal puts the land in the trust. Perpetuity. So tenants to homeowners or Habitat for Humanity or whoever ends up taking this on gets to decide what product meets the needs of this community and to build those products without any land costs. And um, they're permanently affordable, so it never goes away. Uh, so we think those are a couple of the, the main advantages of this plan. The other thing is you're, they're literally going to be walking distance to a daycare, a park, a grocery store, um, you know, just a really nice space. Oh, oh I'm going to go back to that. So <laughs> this picture to the left is really from our design guidelines for the, what we anticipate the products in this area looking like. So we would assume, we would uh, you know, work with Rebecca to make sure that the products that we build on the affordable side, or that get built on the affordable side, fit into this neighborhood and don't look different than the other products we're building there. So that you won't drive down the street and go, oh, that's one of them, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we don't want. <laughs> so. Uh, that's just an example of the kind of products that we're thinking for in that area. So to summarize, uh, you know, we want to create a welcoming entrance you know, at this development that enhances the KU brand and, and the city and brings uh, attention to that area. Uh, we have a mix of uses that really create that live, work, play environment, including the daycare, that you know, companies that are coming to Lawrence are looking for and it can set us apart from other communities with research parks. Uh, the plan connects, connects this development to KU, which we think is a strong driver for a lot of companies and really positions us, uh, you know, take advantage of the next wave of innovation. So this is a pretty picture. <laughs> Looking uh, as aerial view for this intersection at the bottom left is 21st in Iowa. And this is really kind of what we envision that that street will look like with the housing products up here on the top of the screen. University and KU Innovation Park buildings on the right. Uh, you know, the grocery store over here to the left and, and another kind of retail. And with that, I'm happy to take any questions you have. Thank you so much. Question on the affordable housing mm -hmm. lot. Those are just the lots. That's not the house part. Right. That, that would right? be the lots. Okay, will that be um, provided in phase one of the project? Because I know that area, what I had understood from a while back was that that's going to be future de development. So would it be available from phase one? Yeah, we would. We could make the donation early in the project. The mm -hmm. streets, you know, will take some time to get there. We need to get phase one built and get that. Uh, rolling and then we would build the second you know the phases on the streets so what about bringing the infrastructure to the lots will that be on that's what you? I'm saying that would be in a, a future so it's not this phase it's not this phase not right now it's not in a plan mm -hmm. okay. any other questions um and when we're looking at the picture the the road there is Stewart Drive right is that that's Stewart Avenue Stewart yes. Avenue mm -hmm. and you were saying 
everything to the south of it is going to be non-exempt. Like the north part was exempt, but the south part was The south part, yeah, the lots, as soon as they become leased, right. the way that kind of works is as soon as they become leased to a for-profit entity, they're no longer used for the university's exempt purpose. Okay. Then they become taxable. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? So the question, so the, um, the property that, the endowment owes everything below ground or at ground below, is that right? The lots themselves, the whole area, is that correct? Uh, pretty much everything south of Becker Drive. Right, I mean, right, yes. yeah. The university owns most of what's inside Becker Drive. So who's gonna own the vertical part? It'd be a private asset class developers. Will they pay property taxes on those assets? Yes. But not they would not be um, um, for the tax abatement part. That would be a separate tax. No, they would pay ad valorem property tax. The TIF then. So the way that the way a developer funded yeah. TIF, and I'm certainly not an expert, but yeah. I'm going to give you my best shot at it. Uh, the developer funded TIF works where the developer pays for all the upfront costs. Mm -hmm. You know, we build the roads, put in the utilities, all that. Mm -hmm. When there is a taxable asset there, that taxable asset pays taxes like everybody else. Mm -hmm. The percentage of the tax in the TIFs, in this case 95%, then comes back to the developer for that period of time to reimburse us for approved infrastructure costs. So not everything that we're doing gets approved, just the stuff that is in the, in the TIF language uh, that's uh, to be approved. Until we either get paid back or the end of the TIF occurs. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is 20 years. Which is 20 years. So I noticed in the term sheet that mm -hmm. um, it looks like you're looking at about almost about $37 million. With all the numbers, you had 17.4 for infrastructure, three for the sanitary sewer, 15 million for the parking garage, another one and a half million for another parking garage. Is that mm -hmm. what I'm seeing? Um, but I also noticed in the staff memo that indicated that the entire build that would only be about 25 million. So what's the discrepancy there with those numbers? I'm gonna look to our... Or Brett, I don't know if, yeah. I'm not sure I understand what you're... Yeah, asking. the staff memo says the initial cost will be 15 million and at total build, that'll be a total of 25 million. In the term sheet, I added them up just briefly and it came to almost about $37 million. So that's a pretty good... So what I'm thinking that... Could you come up? Oh, yes, absolutely. Introduce yourself. I'm Caroline Burnett, and I'm an associate with Brailsford and Dunlavy, and we have been um, assisting the KU Endowment and uh, West District Improvement Company with the preparation of these materials. Um, the document that you may be referring to, um, and I would I would have to look at it to confirm that, um, but there was a document, uh, an application letter and a, an application and a spreadsheet and some other materials that were submitted um, to this group in uh, August ahead of that first, um, the, the first reading related to this project. And so at that time, based on where we were in the preparation of project materials and our understanding of costs, this was actually before um, specific 
construction bids had been received for the project. And so at that time, the best estimate of the cost uh, broke down into um, the 15 million in the first phase and then the 25 million total build out. Um, and then as we have progressed through the past several months, we have taken those costs out to bid. We've received that more um, updated and accurate costing information. And we've continued to um, perform that analysis. That's where that differences coming into play. Um, a lot of that, again, is due to just what's happening in in the construction industry right now with construction costs, which I know that um, this board and the folks in this room are probably very well aware of. Um, and so that, if, if, if I'm thinking of the document that you're referring to, that is my, um, my best guess as to what's happening there with that discrepancy. Okay. Any other questions? Um, not right now. Thank you. Oh, might have some in a minute. Did you have something, Commissioner Littlejohn? No, not at this time. Other questions? Okay. You do? I have a question. <laughs> this might be for Britt. Um, on this evaluation for the TIF, is it a but for analysis? Commissioners, this is Brooke Comcano, Economic Development Director. Um, yes, there's actually going to be two studies, uh, a feasibility study and a but-for or need for assistance study. So there will be two studies that will be specific to Project Area 1. Okay, but the TIF is, is the TIF just for Project Area 1 or is it for the entire well, the, the what you're what oh, yeah, I saw the, dealing right, with I saw tonight the, is yeah. the whole TIF boundary, and then um, Project Area One is what will go forward first, and that's where the specific analysis will come into play. So when you are, when it comes back to you later on to uh, to discuss the Project Area One plan, then we'll have those studies and the specifics of those studies. Got it. Uh, for you to consider. Okay, thank you. Anything else? Okay. Is that it, or are you bring, gonna bring us someone else? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the worst standpoint, yeah, yeah. Well, at this point, if Tom Dinaway is on, uh, on Zoom, oh, it looks like he is. I'd like to turn it over to him again. You're not going to see the specifics of his studies. He's still working on those, but I think he can at least give you some, a foreshadow of the, the financial situation. Hi, thank you, Britt. Uh, thank you, Mayor, members of the City Commission. My name is Tom Denoy. I am with Baker Tilly Municipal Advisors. And maybe before I get too far in this, uh, I just want to pause, make sure everybody's able to hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Okay, perfect. Uh, so yes, as Britt mentioned, we are in the process of preparing uh, the project area one, uh, but for analysis, as well as the feasibility analysis. <coughs> analysis. And those are two uh, statutory requirements that would be associated with the creation of project area one. Uh, the adoption of the TIF district or the creation of the TIF district gives uh, the, the city the ability to create those project areas in the future uh, and it's the creation of those project areas that would create the actual capture of the tax increment and the obligation of the tax increment so the creation of the tip district gives you the uh, authority 
the adoption of the project area gives you the ability. Uh, so with that, as part of the creation and then working in anticipation of the review of the creation of project area one, we are preparing both a but-for analysis as well as the feasibility analysis, as I mentioned. Uh, the but-for analysis is the finding that the proposed development would not occur but for the requested assistance. And I can say, while we have not finalized that report, we have suffic sufficiently completed due diligence on that report to be able to make that finding that this proposed project and quite frankly, the, uh, the extensive amount of public infrastructure that is needed to make this site developable would not be capable of being funded by private development alone and would therefore need the TIF assistance for that project to be feasible. So uh, we'll be documenting that in a full report and presenting that report. Uh, both at the public incentive review committee as well at the city council at the date that the project area uh, comes before you. And in addition to that, we're also preparing the TIF feasibility report, which is uh, the report that documents all the assumptions used in preparing the TIF and CID revenue projections and outlines and identifies the anticipated reimbursable expenses uh, for those expenses. Uh, so as previously mentioned, the reimbursable expenses will be limited to public infrastructure improvements as well as the parking improvements as uh, generally defined within the term sheet. Mm -hmm. And the proposed TIF assistance will be provided on a pay-as-you-go basis. Uh, so the endowment and uh, its partners will be undertaking that all those infrastructure improvements uh, and incurring those upfront and they will be reimbursed over time to the extent that TIF revenue is generated and only to the extent that TIF revenue is generated. If revenue comes in at a lower or lesser rate, the city would have no further obligation uh, to make up any shortfalls in TIF revenue. So it completely puts that risk on the developer's shoulders and does not add any additional risk to the city beyond just uh, making the TIF payments to the extent that the TIF and CID revenue is generated. So uh, we are in the process of preparing both reports, uh, the but for report as well as the TIF feasibility report, and those will be brought uh, in completion back. Uh, the first public review of those will be at the... Uh, the public incentive review committee meeting in um, the middle of December. So with that, I'll turn it over for any questions. I got a quick question. I might've missed this. You might've said something about this. Um, so uh, the reimbursement, if it occurs, would um, be for a certain time, time frame. And if that money was all captured back, the 33 million or whatever it's going to be, um, then obviously they would get that. What if it overperforms? Uh, if it overperforms, that uh, reimbursable amount would be re, uh, would be repaid at a at a quicker rate if revenues come in at a faster rate. That amount would be repaid earlier, and that would allow for the district to be ended earlier. Once that obligation has been fulfilled, uh, the city would have the ability to then uh, place this property property back on the general property tax rolls and allow for the full benefit of the city and the county from the property tax standpoint. Uh, the school district will benefit partially uh, from the immediate build out due to their protected mills, but that is not their entirety of their mills, uh, so they would benefit fully uh, upon the completion of the repayment of that infrastructure improvement. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> um, I've asked, we asked Rebecca Buford to come up uh, I guess, support the affordable housing uh, proposal. So I'd like to have her. 
<clears throat> oh, there you are. I couldn't see you at all. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Buford, Executive Director of Tenants to Homeowners, and I am in full support of this concept for, for several reasons. One, you guys have heard me talk about this before, but how we like mixed income neighborhoods. And so this is really putting it into practice, right? We're developing a community, 15 minute community with childcare and amenities. And we're not saying, and then we'll put the affordable housing way over there. We're saying we're gonna put it on this site. What I like though is that we understand, or you know, Monty suggested very well that we also know that building affordable housing that is functional and works for whatever targeted population we might need next year, which may be a little different than what we need today, um, is is best done by nonprofit developers or those that you know really do affordable housing day in and day out because it's such a, a difficult I mean it's a nonprofit you know to do affordable housing you don't make a profit so you have to figure out ways to fill the gap and that requires leveraging and additional funds so the time frame too even though this this might not be phase one, the affordable component. I'm actually very much in support of that because given the federal money right now, we have a lot going on. So it would allow us the time to apply for and get the right kind of leverage funding so we can do a really nice job with this and make sure that it matches the character of the neighborhood and make sure that we're addressing different targeted populations that make sense in this neighborhood and around this neighborhood and the needs of families, uh, you know, single parents, whatever we're, we're looking at that we might have a gap in at that time. So that flexibility gives us a way to really build better affordable housing units at the time um, and then leverage additional funds so that we, you know, I, I think I'm proud that Tenants to Homeowners really prides themselves on building in neighborhoods where it fits and it looks nice. And so we would guarantee that effort goes into this project too so that it isn't like, oh, that's the affordable section, but no, it, it matches, it, it works together. Um, and so we really have a well-designed a mixed income neighborhood. So I think this, I know it's a little different than the way the policy was written, but I think it's a really good um, way to look at a solution for this. And then all, always we support permanent affordability over temporary affordability, right? So I think that's another reason that, um, and land donation really helps us. I've told you guys this before, if I have the site, I can apply for leveraged other funding. And right now there's a lot of interesting pots of funding federally. So I think in the, in the coming year or two, we'd be able to apply for some really excellent funding to make this a fabulous project. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Any questions for Rebecca? I've got one for Monty. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Monty, I got another question for you. Um, on the affordable housing piece, the, the lots that you're proposing mm -hmm. to donate to um, tenants to homeowners, um, this is a future phase of this whole big project, which I appreciate that. You got to kind of chunk it down. Um, what if that things don't work out and the other phases are canceled? That happens. Some projects look at our farms, you know, best laid plans, so to speak. Just doesn't happen. Um, 
how, would they still be able to have that land? Or are they going to get that land immediately as the projects are started? Um, would infrastructure still be guaranteed to be brought to them so they can build their homes? Those are good questions. <laughs> you, might not, uh, so, you might still be in the no, stages of no, figuring you know, that out. I, we, I haven't you know, had the chance really to sit down with Rebecca. Obviously, I, I, when we came up with the, the idea, I reviewed it with her to make sure that it made sense mm -hmm. you know, for tenants of homeowners and the land trust. Um, you know, I think we would commit the land. Obviously, that's part of this process. And to get the uh, financing, I think we have to commit the land, right? Mm -hmm. um, the infrastructure, you know, we would... Uh, I would say that that residential piece is an early next phase for us. We want to bring that. We want to create that uh, space so it's not in, you know, the immediate. We need to get, you know, we've got a $20 million infrastructure project underway. We need to recoup some of that before we uh, take on the next <clears throat> piece of that. But I would say that the, infra the, the next, you know, phase would be that, that residential component um so but i you know to stand here and tell you that we would deliver the infrastructure before you know not even knowing where the piece of land is i can't do that sure. right now certainly that was our, would be our intent to mm -hmm. you know it doesn't do tenants to homeowners any good yeah. to have a piece of land that they can't develop right um so you know i guess i'm here to tell you the best of my ability, KU Endowment will make that right because that's what we're agreeing to with the city. I realize we're really early in the project, but right. those are some things that I would be thinking about mm -hmm. as you move forward with with the planning of it, especially for since you're you know potentially coming yeah. back here for that. Yeah, and we already have developer interest in that piece, uh, so I think you know I think the interest is there. You know what the housing market looks like in Lawrence. So if we can bring regular market housing product online, that's also a good thing. Uh, so uh, I don't think we're gonna. I don't think that phase is that far into the future. And I don't even if this first phase struggles, I don't think that phase would struggle. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Um, right. Well, thank thank you for thank giving you. us the opportunity to present. Thanks. Absolutely, of course. I just wanted to say that that uh, completes our formal presentations. Thank you, Britt. Uh, any last questions here? Uh, let's see if there's any public comment in the room. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I, I'm not like 100% familiar with this project, but I think I've heard before that um, a lot of the jobs that's, um, that might be coming in because of this are going to be like tech jobs. And I just been have, I've been reading and in places where uh, tech jobs, where they bring in tech jobs, um, affordable housing, or I mean, uh, housing prices go up. Um, it's happened in Seattle and San Francisco. Um, I'm just wondering, have you all thought about what, if this actually happens, you're talking about affordable housing, what does it mean for affordable housing that's not at this place, but throughout the city, if they bring in, because I've heard, I've read, um, it's 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 faster for a, a startup um, like tech company that creates a, a, a 
a successful app, it's going to be faster for them to bring in 500 employees because of their success than it would be for the city to create 500 uh, fort like housing units. So um, I, I'm just wondering uh, how, how will this affect um, like all these jobs coming in? Like, what if? these jobs aren't filled by Lawrence residents, but we have out people from outside of Lawrence moving into the city. Like, what's that gonna mean for our, our affordable housing? And when also when it comes to the affordable housing part, um, I was just wondering, um, when they talked about the high-end apartments, um, can they put any affordable housing units in those high-end apartments at least until the next phase is completed? Like, we're just taking it at their word that, well, the next phase will be affordable housing unit. Can you, in, can you all enforce, like, well, until that happens, you're going to have to give so many, like, so many units of these high-end apartments, make them affordable, and then once you once the the affordable housing units are built, then you can have them back to charge full price on. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, when it comes to like tax, I'm kind of against tax breaks because they talked about grocery store. Well, how's it fair for our established grocery stores that we're giving this new one a, a tax break? Like, how's that fair to checkers? Did checkers get a, any kind of tax break where they get money back? Um, so those are just some thoughts I've been having, but I, I do all think I do think y'all need to think about what's going to be the impact for affordable housing if we if we start creating a bunch of tech jobs. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment in the room on this item? Is there anyone online who has public comment on this item? We can raise your digital hand. Mayor, I am not seeing any raised hands. All right, good. Let's uh, bring it back to the commissioners. Uh, questions or comments? Well, it's uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump Go in, ahead. Commissioner yeah. John. Um, I uh, I was happy to hear that there was going to be this affordable housing component and also the child care component, both aspects that we direly need in this community. Um, uh, but Mr. Flowers also brings up a, a great point. Was at any point was there any sort of consideration of placing, in a temporary basis, any sort of affordable housing in the high end portion of it, um, until uh, the affordable housing is completed elsewhere? Go ahead, please. Um, so I would say no. There was not consideration of that. Uh, the way we are. Uh, uh, we're, we're creating the lots and we're leasing to for-profit developers. You really can't go out into the market and negotiate a deal with a for-profit developer and go, by the way, it takes 15% you know, of your units to be affordable when they're not receiving the uh, incentive because they really won't receive the incentive because it's for the infrastructure. Um, so the really, it's a non-starter. You wouldn't get a really, you might <laughs> find a developer that's going to do that, but it's highly unlikely that you would get somebody to do that. 
So that's why we took this alternative route because we knew we couldn't press that onto our for-profit developers of the, the, the housing products that we're having them come in and build. Uh, so that's why we took the other route uh, because we thought we could, we could, this is something we can do without trying to press that on, that burden onto a for-profit developer. Understood. Sense? Understood. Um, and uh, in that regard, I'm glad that the land is being donated to tenants for homeowners because they can, like you said, they can lock that up for permanent affordable housing. Right. Um, which is also, like I said before, direly needed. So right. I'm a strong advocate. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed, Monty. I have guessed. <laughs> Thank you. Any other Thank questions, you. comments? Just a couple comments. Um, agree on the, you know, one on the, you know, having Hilltop expand is just a huge bonus. <laughs> 170, zero to two is huge for um, our community, which is a big deal. You know, I do think TIFs, you know, all important for infrastructure. And again, I think it's important that, you know, understand this infrastructure certainly serves this project, future projects, but also strengthens our entire system, which I think is an important part of that, as well as, you know, 21st Street and the the sewer system. So I think that's what, you know, TIFs are built for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would say that, you know, interestingly, um, you know, what some of our we are missing at the moment is is housing and this project's actually building housing before the jobs come in we have some jobs now so to get these apartment complexes in i think will drive the jobs mm -hmm. um rather than the other whether other way around um so getting this um these amenities in i think will drive bringing in jobs but we'll have these um complexes and then as monty said i don't think the second phase of this is going to take long at all to to come on board i am at zero percent concerned that um, if KU Endowment wants to build housing in that location that they cannot find people to help them build their housing. So that has little or no concern to me. And as, um, you know, as Rebecca said, I would much rather have the land donated and have a few years to plan properly mm -hmm. than have a have some temporary housing inside an apartment complex. I mean, this is a much better solution if, to have the housing um, donated. And lastly, I would say, you know, just to make sure it's clear to Mr. Flowers, these are not a tax break that will be passed on to the grocery store. The grocery store will be paying full taxes just like checkers. It's the taxes will then be paid to us at the city who will then use it to reimburse the, the uh, um, infrastructure costs so it will not be a tax breaks passed on to any of these for-profit entities yeah. it will be used to pay for the infrastructure um, so I think that um, is an important factor of consideration so obviously we're going to see this project several more times um, <laughs> and we're going to see the the full development um, I mean the full plan at a later point so I'll save my other comments and um, support for this, but I think this is a very important first step on a very good project. Mm -hmm. uh, just to quickly echo some of the sentiments from uh, some of my fellow commissioners, you know, I my mother lives right off of 17th and Oliver, which borders uh, the WSU Innovation Campus, and so watching that project is be similar to 
um, what the crossing will be with the community of Lawrence and with KU, similar to what the community of Wichita, Northeast Kansas community, Wichita, Kimmar neighborhood, um, and the relationship with WSU. So I hope that this will build a relationship, and it seems like a lot of the um, community engagement and speaking with the neighborhood um, really put that in the process because that was something that was lacking a little bit. My mother served as the neighborhood <clears throat> association president and really struggled to have consistent communication with the university and envisioning what the neighborhood's role would look like. And it wasn't necessarily a collective collaboration or helping us imagine what the neighborhood, how the neighborhood can be supported by this project, but mostly about what this project, how it benefits WSU and how there could be a spillover effect for the neighborhood and so they struggle with that there was no affordable housing piece put in play so I'm glad that that's in conversation um, starting in phase one with the commitment that will lead to that in, in phase two and I'm and I'm, I'm confident and hopeful that that will continue to be and so um, the neighborhood struggles to feel their sense of identity and belonging in that project and I hope that that won't be the case with this project so um, just wanted to give that little anecdotal piece again um, Monty, you brought up an excellent point in regards to the economic development policy in regards to affordable housing and how it kind of didn't fit into this. And so that gives us, um, as commissioners, something to think about. I think I've brought it up um, in regards to sustainability policy and as commissioners and as policy um, framework builders, you know, how do we look at that policy in as it relates to projects like this, um, where we're impeded by state statute, and what can we do as a workaround to look at building that out so that we can have more, um, we have a policy that fortifies what a public-private partnership could look like in addressing affordable housing. So thank you for sharing that. Um, the echo the sentiments that um, Commissioner Finkeldahl had about uh, with the child care piece, you know, having um, creating early care and education uh, within this project that not only benefits those within the within the park and who live there, but hopefully um, those within the community, it gives a sense of building out early care and education districts, which we don't have. We don't have anywhere um, as we address um, child care, but specifically infant toddler care, which is in high need because we don't have work. We don't have a workforce and we don't have a state that supports um, paid family leave, which is why you have a need for infant toddler care. And to know that there will be a matriculation from this center. Um, it's not daycare, it's, it'll, it'll be a center. So from the center care to center care, from infant toddler to toddler preschool um, is wonderful and I'm excited to see that. Um, I do support the later phase of the housing to, um, to Rebecca's point, um, the idea that it's not part of that main point. It goes back to your point, Monty, in regards to the, the developer piece and you start to get into tricky things with LIHTC and it's not for perpetuity. And so why create chaos and mess in another piece that's such a big complex project to not have that there so if that's going to be market rate that's market rate let's make sure we have the commitment to phase two that we do that mixed income um, housing and, and have that there so I think I checked off all my boxes I did so thank you for this presentation I look forward to supporting this project absolutely thank you so we've had two public meetings with the Marbonne neighborhood and uh, two things there. The current sewer system actually backs water up into that neighborhood when we have big rain events. It's what uh, 
our engineering staff told us. So it's really kind of was kind of a dire situation. But also in our meetings with that community, we are talking with them about creating a trail connection, a pedestrian connection into that neighborhood somehow, uh, which was their suggestion. Um, not a vehicular connection, but just a Wonderful. pedestrian so that they can get over to the amenities we're creating. That was one of the requests they had. So those conversations have been really really good and fruitful and that's great because i know with the with my mom i mean in her neighborhood there it was a trail connection at the city but there is no trail connection connecting the university to the community so those within the university they have to cross the it's the the trails are disconnected so th that was a missed opportunity and so it's glad to i'm glad to hear that and that you you took that recommendation and you heard that and applied it to your uh, to your uh, to your plan so thanks I had a real quick question for money if I might um, sorry about that money okay, just stay up how many total housing units are proposed for the whole build-out how many how many total housing units are proposed for the build-out I I can't answer that uh, you know we did a master plan for that area but we're not to the point where we have everything designed and have all of that um, our first apartment complex is going to be about 200 to 220 units. There is a second lot within the development, which could be potentially another 200. Uh, and those would be the first, you know, those are on Becker drive. Those would probably be the first to be, you know, commercially developed. Um, and then we'll look at that, uh, you know, more, I would call it garden style or condo style stuff up against that neighborhood the Marvone neighborhood, Marvone Meadows. Uh, the idea there really was to try to be a good neighbor and kind of do, if you will, backyards to backyards so that they're not facing uh, something other than another neighbor. You know, they're not in facing a commercial building or something like that. Because that was a, an issue when the, when the university built the High Bay Structural Testing Lab, which was, you know, I don't know, six stories tall and just a big blank wall next to the neighborhood that neighborhood was not happy with the university i think to put it mildly uh so we're trying to make sure that that we are not in that same position and we're creating a better buffer so we'll actually create housing in between the structural testing lab and that and the people that buy those houses will know what they're looking across the street at you know it's not like something got pushed onto them okay thanks um, um, so that's about four to five hundred housing units, and the proposal for the affordable housing is thirteen to twenty-six. Is that? It could be higher density than that. It depends on that. I was just trying to provide an example. Okay. It's yeah, I, I appreciate. Acre and a half is thirteen, basically yeah. thirteen R five lots. Okay. And with the double density, they could be thirteen, or it could be more R three lots, and or it could be a single lot. It could be row houses if that's what tenants and homeowners decides is the best fit for that mm -hmm. there's some complexity in that and zoning as you know mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but uh, i think we can figure out how to how to make that work sure so it could be min it could be a lot but it's got to fit into the context i think the picture i showed was like three-story mm -hmm. there was some three-story row home kind of things and that's pretty high density mm -hmm. uh, when you think about an acre and a half of that kind of product so okay thank you so our economic development policy is generally 10% of, of um, the project would 
entail some level of affordable housing. So might just keep that in mind. Um, yeah, um, and we looked at that, and it also is, I mean, when you look at that, and it's 30 years of affordability, and mm -hmm. you the, the affordable housing ends up with nothing at the end of 30 years, other than 30 years of service. In our case, we're donating a land asset that will be permanently affordable, permanently. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a there's a somewhat of a trade. Uh, you're not gonna. I I couldn't figure out how to make that equate. Yeah. You know I what I mean? It just doesn't. And it's not. If I was required to have forty, you know, forty units, based on the percentage, forty thirty year, uh, affordable. You know, one and two bedroom apartments doesn't equate to forty permanently affordable. You know, oh, three bedroom yeah. units. So it's trying to, it's, it is hard to equate. I don't know how you do it, but mm -hmm. I recognize that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that this has got, you know, interesting aspects of this project, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. I think tonight all we're voting on is for, to actually form the district, and then it goes through the normal process of PERC and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm ready to vote on. I did want to thank you for communicating with the neighbors and the neighborhoods early and often. Laudable. Thank you. Um, I think we do also need to close the public hearing. There, I did it. Uh, are there any motions? I move we adopt on first reading ordinance number 9947 and refer the project area one TIF plan to the Public Concerns Review Committee for review and recommendation. Second. second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Um, I do want to check. It's been two hours that no one needs five minutes. We need a break. Five, five okay for everybody? Good. I was fine. All right. Thank you. We'll be back in five. Dave, you good? Good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Let's return. Uh, our next item is uh, item number two on our regular agenda. Consider approving a text amendment, TA22-00249, to Chapter 20 of the City of Lawrence Land Development Code. And I think Kyle will be here. But if you don't mind, Kyle, I'm going to break tradition here. I, I kind of wanted to say I really uh, appreciate all the people who emailed us and called us and all the people that I discussed this issue with over the last couple weeks. It was really fruitful and pleasant and there was a lot of um, thoughtful responses to this issue. So I just kind of wanted to say that by way of setting a tone, uh, how, how much I appreciated um, the, the level of conversation on this issue in the community. So go ahead, Kyle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is Kyle Kobe with planning. Um, the text amendment before you tonight pertains to section 20-509 of the Land Development Code, which are the standards pertaining to eating and drinking establishments. Uh, more particularly, the code section proposed for modifications is section 20-5095, standards that apply in the CD district. The recommended changes before you tonight differ somewhat from those proposed by the applicant. The reason for that has to do with the particulars of the existing alcohol regulations within the CD district. The changes initially proposed by the applicant pertain to section 20-5092 accessory bar standards. 
Have you seen, as you've seen in the staff report, there was there were several reasons why staff is recommending changes to the CD district standards rather than the accessory bar standards. The primary intent of the change is to address the central issue at hand for the applicant. Uh, the application was submitted by a business located in downtown Lawrence. So if a change were made to the accessory bar standards, it would still leave the CD district restrictions in place and would not address the true intent of the applicant. The reason for all of this is that the CD district standards regulate licensed premises rather than uh, specific uses. So in other words, the CD district standards regulate the sale of alcohol in general, regardless of the use. Standard in question is the existing section 20-5095I. It states, the licensed premises use in CD shall be required to derive from the sales of alcoholic beverages, not more than 45% of its total gross sales receipts during the calendar year. In other words, unless the business is one of the existing grandfathered locations, any establishment wishing to sell alcohol may not do so if those sales exceed 45% of its total sales. So in order for the text amendment to address the intent of the applicant's request, a change to the standard would be necessary. The accessory bar standards state that if at any time the sale of alcoholic beverages exceeds 55%, then the bar will be deemed the principal use. The applicant's initial request was to allow for a modification of the standard to allow a reduction from 55% sales to 10% sales. Um, so in other words, that would uh, allow for an accessory bar to constitute 90% of the total sales. Um, so when converting the request over to the CD district standards, uh, since the existing standards state not more than 45% of total sales may be from alcohol, the number was flipped from 10% to 90%. Several conditions are recommended if such a reduction of the standards were to take place. The primary condition is that the requirements for requests of this type be made via a special use permit. Special use permits require public notice as well as hearings at both the Planning Commission and City Commission. This route would ensure that a transparent public process takes place, would bring in the same criteria for review as any other special use permit, and allow for additional conditions or restrictions to be applied to any given use. Second condition is that the gross floor area of the use is less than 3,000 square feet. This is intended to ensure that large-scale bars or nightclubs would not be able to seek a reduction to the alcohol sales standards. Other restrictions recommended at this time are that the business obtains and maintains a valid liquor license, as well as the provision uh, that any other restrictions placed upon the special use permit would apply. Staff is recommending approval of the text amendment for the reasons outlined in your staff report. Uh, given that the proposed changes would still retain the existing standards by default, uh, would only apply to smaller scale uses and require a special use permit application, staff feels that approval of this change would allow for a way for businesses to seek approval of a modification to these standards in specific instances without fundamentally reworking the standards overall and in such a way as to not significantly impact the existing character of downtown Lawrence. The item was heard by the Planning Commission on October 26th, and after discussion, they voted 6-2 to forward a recommendation for approval. Uh, one last point of clarification. Uh, the language in the ordinance attached to this item differs from that found in the other attachments, such as the staff report. Uh, the updates were made since the time of the Planning Commission was heard after review by the City Attorney's Office. Um, while the wording has changed, the substance of the information contained it within it is the same as before. Um, I just wanted to address that real quick, as you'll note that uh, the ordinance reads a little bit different, but the substance is, is unchanged, essentially. Uh, that concludes my presentation. I'll be available to help answer questions. I believe the applicant indicated they would be in the room to participate. I think I might have seen one of them 
online as well, though. So, thank you, thank you, Kyle. Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you, Kyle. Also, <clears throat> appreciate it. Um, if I if I could, I'd like to just sort of like start off by saying um, thank you to each every every one of you for for your time, not just tonight, but over the last several months. And, and Mayor Shipley mentioned that that this conversation has been sort of like ramping up and ongoing over the last few weeks. And I I, I know how much that that takes from all of you. I really appreciate your your reading all those emails and and thinking about this. Um, it means a lot. Thank you. Um, the, the section in question here, um, originally Section 2509, was, was originally passed in 1994, as, as we all know, with the overall goal of protecting the integrity of downtown Lawrence and avoiding the issues that drinking establishments common at that time especially would be likely to exacerbate. Uh, so in, in the last 25 or so years since then, municipalities across the country have seen a rise in small, experience-focused drinking establishments such as John Brown's Underground, the applicant in, in, in my my, my business in question here. Um, our goal in proposing this variance was to strengthen the intent of the 1994 code and in protecting the integrity of downtown to continue the work that that um, ordinance began. So beyond having had opportunities to represent Lawrence in national publications and to create something of a destination for folks across the country who share our interests or just wish to celebrate a special occasion, uh, at, at JBUG we are proud to be offering what we believe to be a fundamentally different kind of experience, drinking experience, than the one that the law was originally intended to control or uh, pr provide a check on, on. So in submitting this proposal, we hope that we and other small responsible drinking establishments who might be in a position to receive a, spe a special use permit under the proposal could have the opportunity to continue doing what we love in, in the place we love most. So um, I'll conclude by saying that the story that led me here today is, is very much a Lawrence one. I uh, was born and raised here, graduate of Free State and, and of KU. Uh, I first spoke in front of this commission when I was nine uh, in the hopes of being able to join my elementary school classmates in, uh, in painting a mural on the side of a downtown building. And so as much as I am here right now, on behalf of my passion for cocktails and spirits with integrity and hospitality, just like that nine-year-old kid, I am also here for the continued health and vibrancy and opportunity of downtown Lawrence. So now, now at 27, I hope to continue to be a part of that story. So again, thank you all very, very much. I'm sure there will be questions, and I'm happy to answer them as best as I can. Um, thank you. Are, are you a Scott or Dante? I'm Dante. Sorry. Hey, Dante. I'm thank so you. It's all right. Don't worry. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Appreciate that. Uh, Kyle, anything else? Oh, with playing. Nothing else from here. All right. All right. Thank you. Are there any questions from commissioners? Um, Kyle, can for the benefit of the, the public, I, I mean, I know the, you know the answer to this, but I think it's useful to talk through what does it mean when you say it's a special use permit? How long will that talk us through the process? How long does that take? Um, and, and what What's typically, and what kind of limitations can the, the commission, the planning commission, put on an SUP? Sure. So, Kyle, with planning a special use permit in terms of timeline, um, uh, broad strokes, uh, uh, two or three months or so is usually the, the typical timeline for those things. Um, they can vary a little bit depending on the particulars of any given request. Some require more time to review. Others are, you know, straight through the process. We don't need to go through some extra rounds for any given particular. Um, uh, in terms of the standards that are applied, uh, there's usually a site plan component to it. Um, it is essentially, it's it's an extra level check. Think think like a site plan application or something along those lines with some extra um, process involved. So notice to neighbors, um, public hearing component, um, as was stated before, planning commission would hear it. Um, they'd offer a chance for public to comment on it. They'd provide their feedback. 
um, and then make a recommendation to the city commission. Um, and then a similar process would play out kind of similar to what we're seeing here tonight. Um, the city commission would hear it. There'd be presentations, public comment, um, discussion, and ultimately a vote. Um, along the way, we'd be reviewing it against, you know, code standards. Um, it, it provides like a, in some cases, there's an upfront check on, you know, some of the other things that would come down the line. If there's uh, building building code, fire code doesn't necessarily come into play directly, but it can be a good upfront check on some of that stuff to make sure that it's even going to be feasible. Um, I'm not sure, you know, in the case of like John Brown Underground, for example, if that would be much of a concern, but um, just for any given application, um, that's something that can take place. Um, there are some uh, standard um, uh, criteria for review that we would um, run through with that. That would be involved, included in the staff report as part of the discussion as well. And then um, any given restrictions or conditions of the use could be applied as well. Um, we don't really have this. This would be a new type of application, so we wouldn't necessarily be able to pull from, you know, uh, the last time one of these came through necessarily, but we, we would probably look to see some similar kinds of cases and um, conditions that might might make sense. Um, those kind of scale up or down or, or uh, adjust based on the context of any particular application. So if there's some sort of additional um, restriction that's needed for um, a contextual factor of some kind, we can apply that at that time, include that in, in the discussion. And all of that stuff is uh, open for for comment, for uh, discussion, and then ultimately gets approved with that use and runs with that use as well. So I hope I answered uh, your question. I can expand on that more if you'd like. Um, can you do a protest petition on SUP? Yes, you can. Good. Thank you. I think. Thank you. That kind of covered it. Thank you, Kyle. Questions? Um, Kyle, could you give me um, uh, an update or what? Do they still, does John Brown still have a permit to operate today? Yeah, so Kyle, could we have planning? They are under a um, their existing license. I, I spoke with Sherry um, the other day. I believe their existing license runs through January 14th. Um, so an extension would be needed to allow for uh, special use permit process to play out. Um, my understanding is that's something that we need to come back through the city commission for discussion. Um, so that's something that you would be seeing uh, in one way, shape or form, I, I think almost regardless of the outcome here. Um, but yes, there's currently a liquor license that's um, set to expire on January 14th. I think Sherry mentioned maybe, I don't want to speak for her too directly, but something along the lines of a December um, agenda return um, take that with a bit of a grain of salt because yeah. I, I might be misremembering that. Thank you. Thank you. That was it. Any other questions? Uh, I do. I don't know if you can answer this, Kyle, or if I, we might have to call Jeff in. Um, where all are bar uses allowed by right in town? Uh, Kyle, could we plan to give me just one second? Okay, so um, the, I'm just going to list off some of the, the, the zoning districts that, that they're allowed by right. Um, the CS district, the CR district, the CC district, the CD district, and the CN2 district, and then the mixed use district allows them via a special use permit. 
All right, thank the, you. Just the commercial districts. I skipped right past the residential I, <laughs> for maybe obvious reasons. Right. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll go with you, but I'll also uh, just warn Randy that you might want to jump in here. <laughs> I can't recall, I've, I've seen uh, SCPs go through and I've even seen some SCPs that had time limits on them like three years or something for the D.A.R.E. Center. Um, but I've actually never seen an SCP get pulled after having um, had it awarded. Um, and so here, you're, you, I think it's sort of suggested that um, there's no violation of liquor law or um, no nuisance or complaints from the neighbors. Um, I, I don't I don't know that we've ever had anything quite like that. And I'm concerned that, frankly, Randy, since I see you, concerned that if we're not very clear about um, how that might get triggered, uh, we might find ourselves in a, a difficult situation. Uh, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Uh, I'm aware, since I've been here the last 10, 11 years, there was a bed and breakfast that had an SUP downtown. And they did not comply with, with all of the standards that were placed on it, and that SUP was ultimately pulled. That's the only one I remember. I believe there was another one that came to hearing, and they I think there was a resolution, and they, they came back into compliance after there was a hearing. And then there have been others that have been investigated that then came into compliance or voluntarily abandoned them. Not very many, but a couple. So it would be a matter of either an investigation, although I don't know that we do a lot of investigations, but it, a lot of these are complaint driven and we would do investigations or, you know, afterward and, and determine whether or not they're in compliance and then would take action we're required to by city code as that's come up before and and that would all be administrative uh ultimately some of that would be administrative but if you know it got to the point where an sup was to be pulled uh since the city commission uh by ordinance grants sups that would be a decision that would be made by the city commission as to whether or not to pull an sup so that would be uh before the city commission I would just add that the county's had, when I was on the planning commission and since then, the county's had several CUPs that have been pulled or investigated, you know, and lots of complaints about quarries and yeah. gun ranges and wedding venues in the county and dust. And it, it does happen more in the county, I think, than it does in the city, given some of the externalities. But it's a fairly robust process. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Um, I think I might want to hit Kyle up again. Um, so, Kyle, we we've made a change recently where um, one of the quote-unquote grandfather bars might be allowed to expand, which uh, wasn't allowed previously. Would there be a situation where we had this set up and we set it up to this 3,000 square feet? And then after 10 years, they could apply to expand the same way that other bars would, basically an SUP upon an SUP. Would that be something that could happen in this uh, scenario? Um, Kyle Kobe, I don't believe, given the way that the code is structured, I don't know that that would be possible um, in a case like this. So the example that you're uh, referring to, I think, is an expansion of a non-conforming use. Um, which is um, a, a bit different than if approved through this process, 
you'd be approved under this code, um, these provisions and any restrictions that were applied to that special use permit. And given the 3000 square foot restriction, I think in a case like that, it almost have to be just an entirely separate use. I mean, if it was next door, that would be something we'd be able to look at at the time that that application came in. You know, if there's an open door between the, the two walls or something like that, it's something we could look take a look at. I'll let Randy jump in as, as well. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Uh, Kyle stated that very well. Uh, the only way that there could be an expansion would be if they met the three thousand up. 3,000 foot square foot threshold. They can't go beyond that. So for example, if it was a 1,500 foot entity and they wanted to expand to 3,000, they'd have to come back and get perhaps an SUP to show that, but they could not go beyond the 3,000 feet as the as the code or the ordinance is currently written. They would be totally subject to a different rules than a non-conforming use or one of those grandfathered bars downtown. Thank you. Um, uh, and Kyle, again, um, since you uh, and we talked about these other districts, I did kind of wonder the the um, well, I guess we call it the arts district, um, since it has similar uh, parameters. You know, we've recently talked about the wine bar that's over there, and, and I believe the restaurants that are over there um, have to adhere to the same percentages. When staff looked at that, were they concerned that if we made a change such as this, it would be reasonable to change that for other districts that had more or less the same parameters? So when I was, uh, when we were reviewing uh, this application, we weren't um, necessarily looking at like the 8th and Penn district. Um, you know, that's something that uh, kind of came up a time or two. <laughs> I think any change to that district would require a separate application and, and process. Uh, so this text amendment would apply to CD specifically. Um, so I think that would require a whole other examination. I don't know if that's the direction that you're going in or, or if the question is more, would this trigger an automatic change to the eighth and pen, which I don't believe it would, but I see Jeff is about to step in and I'd have a correction to any of what I just said. <laughs> not, not to correct Kyle at all in there, Jeff Craig Planning and Development Services. The 8th and Penn District actually carries some of the, the very similar language that you would see in the downtown over via conditional zoning. So it's not in the same zoning district, but it's carried versus a condition into the area. And so a lot of those conditions didn't even change when we switched from the 55% food sales to the 45% alcohol sales because those conditions are not in the same categories of that. They'd have to be changed independently via separate ordinance. So it, this would only carry over into the CD, the downtown zoning district, in the way that it is written. So I hate to ask you this, but if I understood, historically, it was somewhat set up that way intentionally to uh, reflect what was happening downtown. So there, that, that was kind of the skeleton. Am, am I correct in, in, in understanding that? You'd be correct, yes. Okay. So, you know, without putting you on the spot, in in your mind then, does it, if we if we make a change like this, um, does it follow that we, we might want to reevaluate that as well? I think so. I think it'd probably be a conversation to be had with the Land Development Code as part of its updating process to, to be a more holistic in that look and view, only because we'd be changing conditions that are already applied via different zoning. But, um, you know, I think that's also within scope and look of that. 
Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Kyle. Uh, any other questions? I kick up any desk with my foolishness. Uh, let's see if we have any public comment. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, my name is Tom Cravens. I'm a decades-long resident of Lawrence. Um, I would like to speak in support of the amendment, and, and specifically with this establishment, but some general comments. Um, um, I understand the original reasoning, I think, behind the original planning, zoning, but I think it maybe has become a little bit obsolete in current times. Um, as a general citizen, I sort of find the rules a little arcane. You know, what's grandfathered, what's in one building, what's in not in another building, what's percent. Um, um, I think in terms of the general atmosphere and economic health of downtown, um, I'm not sure it is useful to have such arcane restrictions. Um, I know myself, I, I enjoy a number of establishments um, of all different types downtown. Um, in terms of the food and alcohol, I might get a drink at one place and invariably my friends and I will go to a restaurant. Um, so if you look at the overall picture, there is a reasonable mixture of food and alcohol, I think, for most people. Um, so in general, I would support the amendment specifically, and I would support, one might want to think overall, how to have a, a, at least a little more um, explainable policy on these things, uh, and what's good for the overall economic health uh, of the downtown. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment? I, uh, this is Chris Flowers, and I, I'd just like to echo the previous commenter's um, remarks. Um, uh, and you made a proclamation earlier about Small Business Saturday. Well, why don't you support small business now? Um, and also, when it comes to this, this alcohol um, limit, um, I know you're trying to protect downtown, but wasn't this didn't you wasn't this passed like in the '90s? Like times have changed since the '90s. Like how how many stores are like brick and mortar stores are are doing business now compared to like in the '90s? Like I mean, when this was passed, this was before um, online had really taken off, and I mean. I think maybe you all should be looking at this this alcohol requirement. Like maybe it is time to to rethink about what downtown should should look like when it comes to what kind of stores are opened in in the properties there. And I, I just want to say I we let, let's let's support small business. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Commissioners. I'm Jennifer McKnight from Arizona Trading Company. I uh, very much appreciate the attention you're putting on this. Um, <clears throat> as you know, I'm a big proponent of downtown business. 
Um, and I'll say as a retailer, um, this, this was passed in the 90s, um, and the intent behind it was to protect the balance of businesses downtown. And the reason that we have the successful and very unique balance of businesses that we do in our downtown, as opposed to um, other comparable college towns, is because of this ordinance. It's because it allows for restrictions on, on, um, on alcohol service and doesn't force retail to compete um, with the income that bars and restaurants can generate. And so actually, uh, brick and mortar stores are very, very important to our downtown landscape. And we do have to hang on to survive because of all of the online competition we have and because of other changes that have happened in downtown that make it very challenging um, to maintain and attract new retail business. Um, so in my mind, as the commission knows, downtown is really struggling with its image right now. I don't think we need to change anything about downtown Lawrence uh, and the rules surrounding it that would affect um, or that it would in any way make it seem more dangerous. Um, right now, downtown Lawrence is having a big image problem, and um, I think that if it is something that, with one exception, with this one exception, then other exceptions come along and um, <clears throat> that will affect everybody in the landscape of downtown Lawrence greatly. And so what I would suggest, at the very least, um, is to put this out for more community discussion so that stakeholders, such as retailers, uh, such as property owners, um, have more of a chance to understand the entire problem, to understand what the ordinance was put in place to accomplish initially, and look at how successful it has been and whether or not we really want to change the language of it. Thank you. Any further public comment? Commissioners, uh, Jim Bateman, my wife and I, Susan, own the Yarn Barn downtown. Um, last year, Susan tells me, was 50 years in the business, so we have some history down here and have seen the street change over the years. Um, the first thing is I appreciated the staffs taking this problem and reframing it in a different context than the original request for a, a special use permit. Uh, it opens up the bigger question, to my mind, the bigger question of what the um, ordinances are, the code for the restaurants and bars and the mixes downtown. And so that, that helped what the staff did to clarify that and put it where it seems needed in the ordinances. Um, I think, however, there was disingenuous in a couple of examples mentioned in the staff recommend or staff report when uh, limiting the space to 3,000 feet as one of the questions it raised or the issues that would keep it from being too large. Uh, 3,000 square feet isn't that much. There are a lot of businesses who either started as 25-foot fronts downtown, which are roughly the 2,500 square feet, or are still that. And if making a change that would make it easier to put more alcohol establishments where we now have or are trying to replace an empty building uh, with a retail business, that just makes the competition for that space 
much harder to put a new retail business in where it might start or might move to here because we look like a good place to be. Um, I do not in any way mean that comment or my next ones to be something in opposition to John Brown's question. It does need to be addressed. Um, my primary concern is that looking and making the suggested change here to satisfy one request is perhaps missing an opportunity to look at the bigger picture, step back and look at something that is 20 years old in the plan, the planning here, and to see if we do need to make changes to the regulations regarding alcohol food mixes in the downtown. Um, whether those things would turn out to be exactly what we're deciding here, you might decide here this evening, or be radically different, I think that's a subject that might need a little broader, longer conversation, and it might reduce the likelihood you have to keep looking at a special request if you have some changes in place and new agreements, or the same one continued. Um, I think that that opportunity is one that you shouldn't pass up. My request would be that you decide this evening to defer this question until there's a chance to review the bigger picture and see if there are changes that need to be made. And again, nothing about John Brown that I think doesn't deserve your attention. And so that's, that's not my point, but we've got an opportunity to look at something long-term here. Thank you. Any further public comment? Okay. Is there anyone online who has public comment on this item? You can raise your digital hand. We'll come find you. Mary, I'm not seeing raised hands on Zoom. Okay. I'll just double check. Nobody else wants to. Come on, girl. <laughs> Hi, my name is Mary Holt. I am the owner and operator of Henry's Upstairs and soon-to-be grounded coffee shop. Hopefully next week <laughs> it will be open. Um, um, of course, I would be... Uh, want to approve this amendment. Um, I think it was kind of archaic. I think it was created for the downtown, you know, in 1994. I think it was always told to me that it was um, put in place because they didn't want downtown to become an Aggieville, which was overrun with bars and drunk college kids and just a kind of a, a sore spot for their for their for Aggieville, we did not want to make that for our downtown. Um, I don't think that it is. I mean, we already have bigger college bars that are in, and I think ones that we're talking about, the smaller ones like John Brown Underground, Henry's, um, are smaller ones that are more creative, like crafted high-end cocktails that we are not. Um, serving to college kids. We're not over-serving. We've all stayed in, um, you know, we don't have any violations. And uh, um, sorry, I was not prepared to speak, but I'm <laughs> rambling now. But um, yes, I would please ask you to consider to approve this. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Um, commissioners, any further questions? Um... Uh, 
um, I'll, I'll say, you know, we discussed this previously on another subject, and I, I had also hoped it would be part of a broader conversation um, with with more engagement. As you know, it was sort of mentioned at Planning Commission, there 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 really wasn't anyone representing downtown at that meeting. Um, luckily, some people uh, came this evening, but um, you know, I think over a thousand people uh, commented or participated in the downtown master plan. And, you know, as, as was suggested by the applicant and at, at planning, um, you know, one of the things that was suggested in the master plan is experience-based businesses. That's not necessarily alcohol. It could be um, climbing facilities. It could be axe throwing. Remember axe throwing or uh, breakout rooms? It could, be, it could be a lot of things that don't necessarily um, involve alcohol. Um, so I... I I wondered if uh, there was any feeling among other commissioners that that this should have maybe been a broader conversation uh, with the community and particularly with downtown. <clears throat> well, um, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Vice Mayor. Um, I, I appreciate the idea of needing to have a broader conversation. First of all, I want to thank Dante for coming forward with this. Um, I've visited John Brown, obviously, before pandemic time, so, but it's a very unique experience, and I really appreciate that, that creative, creativeness that you brought to it. Um, what I'm thinking about is that right now we're going through the big code review, and it's a comprehensive code review. And so it seems to me that Yes, I do think a broader conversation needs to be had. And I know we've discussed before, and I've expressed interest in revisiting that 45-55 um, percentage, um, and I'm definitely interested in that. But I'm wondering if it would be better for us to allow the development rewrite to occur, that process to continue. Um, and so a full discussion we had there, along with the community and downtown um, folks, and at the same time, though, um, provide an opportunity for John Brown Underground to continue to operate under their temporary permit or permit until that issue is resolved during the code re rewrite. That's what I'm interested in. Because I, I, I do think it needs to, something needs to change, but I don't know. I think it needs a broader conversation. Well, and if I may, my example of, well, we've created this other area that was uh, built on the assumptions we made about downtown. So if we reevaluate downtown, should we reevaluate that other area? It, it becomes a broader conversation. Um, but in the land development code review, as Vice Mayor Larson was referring to, we're reevaluating everything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's going to be a part of the conversation right. ultimately. So, yeah. I mean, that's, um, thank you. that would be the avenue for that discussion that, that needs to be had. Um, go ahead. Oh, well, I'd say a couple things. I'd say um, certainly I do think, I mean, well, one, um, you know, I, I think all of these things are going to look, we looked at in the code and, um, you know, whether or not we do this tonight and look at it again a year, year and a half from now or whether or not if, if it looks, you know, if, if we push this off to another discussion time, I think it's going to look, be looked at anyway. You know, one of the reasons I ask my question, you know, I am not a big fan of special use permits, you know, in general. I mean, from my time on the planning commission otherwise, I mean, the, the whole idea of a special use permit is an idea that you have something that doesn't fit in your neighborhood or fit in your wherever, and that 
only through a very special process might you let that happen. Um, and so it's something to say, hey, we discourage this from being here, but there's a, a, a method to which you could um, overcome that. You know, again, in the county, a koi. You know, we don't have a lot of koi's, but you get a special use permit to get a koi. Um, you know, so, you know, part of me, you know, up until really, again, we haven't had a lot of input um, or people speaking against this until really the last week or so. I mean, Planning Commission, otherwise, I, I just now recently started getting some of the retailers being concerned about it and getting a lot of support for it. I mean, I, I think if you think this is something that's good for downtown, you wouldn't make it a special use permit. You would eliminate paragraph 5-2-A and just say, you can do it. If that's what you, if you think it's good for downtown, if you think it's not good for downtown, of course, you cannot change the rule. And the compromise is, I don't think it's great for downtown, but hey, if we do an SUP, we can do it on a case-by-case basis. And the truth is, you know, the three months, you know, is the fastest you can get through an SUP. I mean, if you look at our planning submittal, you have to submit for John Brown to have got their permit at our January 17th meeting, they would have had to submit an application on October 17th. That's the, the application deadline. Um, then it goes to the December 19th Planning Commission. Then the earliest it could be heard by us is January 17th. Now, obviously, it takes some time before you submit an application to get it ready, right? So again, if you're thinking about someone who wants to think about opening up a bar in 3,000 square feet, they would either, they would be at least four probably five months, you know, either they're going to get that, rent that place, get a lease for a building, go through a five-month process to get an SUP. Only after they get their SUP could they get the building permit. Then they would build their, build out their space and open their ball likely seven, eight, nine months later, you know, after they leased it. Or the landlord would have to say, I'm willing to wait until you open the ball before you pay um, taxes, you know, before you pay any rent. So I'm going to wait that seven, eight, or nine months between that process. Um, I mean, to me, SUPs basically say we don't want these in our in our area, and it's a really hard process. I think if you left this in here, you would not see a proliferation of bars because the the SUP process followed by the building permit process to change a retail space into a bar space. I mean, you're talking eight, nine, or ten months from the day you conceived the idea, found a, a possible place before you could open your doors. So I think the way this is set up, you know, again, to me is an interim, interim step if you left it that way, because it is not going to lead to any quick proliferation of, of spaces. And then the, the, the governing body could always say no, or the governing body could say you have to close at one o'clock, or the governing body could say, you know, you can't be open on Friday nights. I mean, we could say whatever we wanted in the SUP if we wanted uh, to control that area. And um, so, again, if you want to open a ball, you're coming through a process in which you're going to have to come in front of this commission before you even know what what your possibilities would be. We could say, like I said, you, we could say you have to close at 10 o'clock every night, you know. Well, that wouldn't work for some businesses. It might work for other businesses, depending on what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. Um, but so, I mean, you know, 
after I watched the planning commission meeting and saw that no one showed up and thought about it, I thought to myself, why even have the SUP if this is something that we think is good? I'd take that out. Now that we've heard from more retailers who have have that concern, um, you know, I could support the SUP process, but I think, you know, we did this once with the Airbnbs and we realized, uh, you know, it's not the best of processes. So personally, um, to me, th th what is before us is a step that would allow us to continue to look at this as we moved into the land development code. Um, you know, that being said, I think it's going to be looked at the land in the land development code one way or the other. So I'm open to other conversations on that. Um. So before I, I see uh, Commissioner Sellers there, the 3,000 feet, I am concerned um, as I uh, spoke with someone uh, earlier that, in fact, a vast majority of spaces downtown are 3,000 feet. Um, yeah, the and, average is a 25 by 100, 2,500 right. square feet. Uh, so I'm not sure what that is helping here in this space if the original intent was to but protect retail, not not to reduce bars, but to protect retail. Um, so um, what what is your thought on, on that restriction and whether it's actually doing anything or not in this? Well, I, I don't think the 3,000 square feet would protect, protect the retail space. I mean, i.e. protect the landlord from saying, hey, I could rent this one way or the other, because again, most spaces are 2,500 square feet. I, th I don't think that would be the solution. I think the 3,000 square feet could be helpful if, if if what you're worried about is a large gathering, you know, say what it is, a large gathering of college students in one area, a dance club or whatever. The 3,000 square feet does limit that, especially downtown where you have a 25-foot, 25 um, you know, a typical building on Mass Street. It, it's very hard to get that kind of, when you put a bar in there, you get bathrooms in there. It's very hard to get a large space where you'd have, you know, again, you have building, I mean, uh, building occupancy limits. So I do think the 3,000 square feet could be useful to control the negative externalities, but I don't think it's useful in trying to preserve space for retail. <coughs> um, and then sort of in that same... Well, we've set up a situation where we're allowing <coughs> the grandfathered um, bars, so to say, to extend again with an SUP. So there's one that'll come to us soon enough. They, under the system we've sort of set up here right now, um, they can they can be twice as big as they were the day before, but uh, these smaller bars can't. And I find that problematic. No less problematic, frankly, than I do that ultimately we have a protected class of, of bars. Yeah. Um, again, why I think the broader conversation is what is necessary here. Do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, again, the, you know, the, if you, if you take that to the natural conclusion, though, you, you would just do away with the limitation whatsoever. That's the way um you would do it and maybe that's where someone thinks we should eventually go um you know i do i, I do think this the 3000 square feet and the 90 percent at least um you know nod in a certain direction um different than just saying just deleting that pair you know deleting that whole section <laughs> um 
you know, the grandfather, to, to be consistent with the grandfathers, you would just delete the entire section. Mm -hmm. And and again, I don't know, maybe that's a broader conversation would lead to that result. I think this by far is a very interim step that's barely heading that way. And I, I, I'm not saying I want to go that way. I'm just saying leading to the natural conclusion, it would be there. I think those the questions you're asking about footage, um, even the 90-10, I don't think that's come up yet, whether that's a, the appropriate percentage breakdown. I think those are the questions that I can envision as part of the code read-write, that those are the questions that would be asked and the public, the general public would be able to, at that point, um, make comment on it and help help form the code um, as it's rewritten on that. And so to do this interim step, I think it's... Um, um, a little bit short-sighted and that if we again I would just go back to is if we allow the process of the code rewrite to continue and allow John Brown to continue to operate under temporary permit until the code is decided um, I, th I think that's a route that I, th I, I believe is um, doable for both sides I would note by the way I would agree with you if you're going to do an SUP if you end up doing that why put the 90% in there at all yeah. I mean, why don't we say the city commission can set what the percentage is? For one business, it could be 70%. For one, it could be 100%, depending on what else, what other uses you're doing. Yeah. Why set the 90% in the code? Right. Surely Randy wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Sellers, what are your thoughts? Mm, I'm no, to the piece, you, just to that last piece of with the special use permit and us being able to adjust it, I think, in with this text amendment, having setting it with the 9010 gives you that equitable consistency among this and i think we get into a dangerous precedence if we start saying that we would use in this context use a special use permit and then adjust it it gets us back to the question that you made in regards to the pen district and the special use and the piece in that so i i, I my heart jumped a little bit with that piece, I can see where that wills the, the governing body's authority, but I think this gives us that consistency um, in keeping that 90-10 there if we choose to move forward with this piece as it relates to the special use permit. I mean, for me, I'm coming at this from a little different direction. Um, you know, Ms. Knight had, in her comment, had mentioned that you know our, our downtown is, is suffering from an image problem, and I... I I would agree with that, but maybe not agree with that in the terms of which maybe she meant it. And I don't want to in, uh, imply anything with that, but I, I think there's a lot as far as the image problem with our downtown and, and specifically in the context that you stated, whether or not what your definition of downtown is and, and how that relates to um, the health of it and the ability to have business down there, whether it's a drinking establishment, retail, um, and those that own property down there. Um, which I think is is a variable that impacts one's ability to thrive and what type of businesses thrive on Mass Street. Um, I've always envisioned downtown to be something bigger than Mass, and it is. And oftentimes we don't talk about it in that capacity. So um, I just I wanted to to at least touch on that point as we talk about downtown master plan and the livelihood of businesses downtown we always speak about it within the strip of massachusetts but is there an opportunity for us to think a little bit bigger about that because to the case john brown underground is not on mass 
it's on the side streets, but by zoning, it's part of the commercial district. It's part of downtown. So um, this goes back to the point of as we're going through the steering committee with development codes and whatnot, we have an opportunity to bring back a product that will be able to hopefully guide us to understanding what the future of downtown could look like and just in, in general in, in our in our land and development code. So um, I, I took something from Commissioner Finkeldye's uh, converse, uh, piece about the county's use of special, of county, the use permits and our special use permits that didn't come to my, didn't come to me in reviewing this. And so, um, you know, it, I'm a little bit conflicted as to, to is this a stopgap in between what we're trying to do with the process that we're going through with land development, but also allows us to modernize a part of our, uh, you know, a piece that relates to um, CD districts that needed to be reviewed. And that this is, again, that stopgap that can we all agree upon utilizing until we get to something more concrete and defined um, with this process? Or is this just another temporary Band-Aid that we're putting on that is going to create a snowball effect to which um, the mayor alluded to? So, you know, I'm not sure I started out, I started this process thinking that I understood what the intent could potentially mean for that, for this time. But I'm not sure if if that's the case. But I, I do see this as a, a temporary stopgap. It's a matter of are we opening up ourselves to additional um, impact from the community, or are we creating something that can um, be a benefit both community and business owner that will tie us over until we have um, the reimagined or revised development code? So I'm not I'm not sure on that. And I don't say that very often. <laughs> I mean, I, I would interject. It absolutely is a stopgap. I mean, there's a hole in our code. And that's why, as Commissioner Finkeldye, you know, eloquently said, that's why we're in this predicament with the SUP. Um, the thing the SUP will provide is more oversight, and it'll provide a little bit of a little bit more stability for John Brown Underground as opposed to continually rolling over like temporary permits. It's like. So I, I believe so in that type of intent, they will have something that they would have to adhere to and rules to have to follow and know and a structure to be held accountable for. So plus, additionally, we've all seen how many empty storefronts are on downtown or in the downtown area. An ability to keep a business there, a business that has been thriving, well-known, and for all intents and purposes, does the right thing, working out a way to go ahead and work with them to make sure that they can continue to operate definitely adds another check mark in my book. Um, I'm going to push back a little bit there. Um, I don't know that I think this is a hole in our code. This was created very intentionally. Now, whether it's out of date or not, fair question. Sure. But th this was very intentionally created. Um, that there are businesses that are unable to be successful under those parameters sure um that's that was the point of it um so I, i'm not sure how i i want to just push back a little bit on that um that's good i would uh 
try if I can um, to uh, convince us all to have faith in the process, which I continue to have faith in the process of the code revision. I think we picked a really amazing uh, group of people for the steering committee. I have great faith in Commissioner Finkeldye, um, and I, I would like to see us um, keep on in that path. And, and, and as much as you all already know, um, I, I was uncomfortable with giving um, a, a probation to this particular business or any business. It's not personal. Um, I, I would, however, be very happy and willing to do that under the circumstances um, so that we could provide room for the steering committee to do its work and for the public to engage on it, if, I, if that helps convince anyone. Well, I mean, I, I, I do agree that, I mean, I, I think what I hear you and maybe Commissioner Lawson saying is don't, don't take action on this, but, it, you know, bring back on the future agenda an extension of John Brown's license for 18 months or something. I mean, you know, Polly June, if, I mean, our code is going to be, you know, I, I think when you look at yeah. the, the, the timeline, yeah. Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong, but it'd be November of 23 to June of 24, we do a full adoption of the code. So we're talking, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, still, we're still a ways away from that. Mm -hmm. Randy's turned his camera on, so he might have a <laughs> comment. Uh, That's Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Uh, you know, I do not have a problem with maybe placing a moratorium or whatever it is that you intend to do for John Brown's. But we probably should do that for our other entities within downtown that may be in the same situation or a similar situation. And we'll have that whole opportunity to go forward. So that applies district wide and we're not just singling out uh, a single entity for uh, maybe a favor, but it would be, you know, apply district wide. That would be my recommendation. Thank you, Randy. I would just still go back to that. I don't think this has had enough public discussion. And that's why I would like to wait for the code development rewrite to have that discussion. Um, and obviously, I, I have no doubt it's going to change. Something's going to change. But I'm concerned about doing, you know, these smaller measures um, and then possibly happen to change it again in, in whatever m months. Um, but I am interested in, in you know, including with that uh, extension, and I don't know what it would entail with other or, um, companies downtown, but that would be something to look at. But um, I, I'm definitely not wanting to pass this tonight as written without additional public engagement. Randy, can you go back real quick and talk about the moratorium piece as an alternative? The city attorney, I mean, basically be somewhat similar to what we did with the apartments situation where we suspended certain provisions of the city code until, you know, the, the COVID emergency was done. And then we, we then did a permanent uh, process. We've had moratoriums in other parts of the city, like regarding development, where we didn't have infrastructure that could, that could establish it. So we, we created a moratorium that was district wide. So it has to apply to everybody equally. We can't create a a you know special class for just one entity. I don't have a problem with us doing that generally, but we need, just need to do it district wide. So if anyone else within the district is having 
perhaps issues and wants to come forward that we just suspend maybe perhaps the provisions, but it wouldn't apply to any new businesses that came in. You know, they would have to comply with the old one, but any existing business, something along those lines, it might be something that we perhaps look at a little bit as well going forward and maybe come back with you with a recommendation. Mm -hmm. But you do think we could do it not for new businesses. Again, we went right without right. further discussion, right. allow yeah. all of a sudden a bunch just, of business to pop just, up without. Yeah. Just right, because what we have here is a, a suggestion by a business to, you know, maybe make a change. It might help them, might help a couple other businesses. And that way we don't open up the floodgates for everybody else. But for existing businesses, existing licensees, we might have an alcohol or, or a, you know, their their license expiring in the next two years, which most likely all of them would because they're usually two-year licenses. Then that way we can get them continue with their licenses. They can continue with their businesses as is, and then we can revisit this once the city code is then, you know, revised and we have a better idea of what exactly it is we're doing. Right. Okay. Thank you again, Randy. Can I get you on that? Well, like I said, I, I mean, I was, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of how the SUP was set up. So I was going to go one way or the other. So. <laughs> this is, this is one I had not predicted. Um, and I thought that was an option and Randy's moratorium is a bonus a thought I had not had. Yep. Bonus points. And I, I maybe wasn't being clear when I was bringing it up, but I'm a little uncomfortable with SUPs too. <laughs> it, there's something so subjective about them oftentimes that I, um, I start to wonder what we're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, generally speaking, I mean, there's obviously times where SUPs and, and they're codified in state law, but I think the less you use them, the better. I think utilizing the moratorium piece would help to be a satisfied for benefit for businesses such as, um, you know, such as John J-Bug, sorry, I won't use the acronym. That can supply that could provide that temporary relief as we go through the code process, while also satisfying the piece that Commissioner Larson brought up. If downtown downtown businesses through DLI or whomever need to revisit this in whatever context that they feel that they need to do that, can do can do so. So I feel like there's several winners in this piece without us disturbing the integrity, the current integrity of the code while trusting the process as we're going through that the revisions while also being able to support a business and also be able to gain that. So I think there are several winners in, in going the moratorium route where in a sense in the work that we that I do is it'll be seen as like a policy exception. So we did it during the pandemic. You allow for a policy exemption to allow businesses to come back online as other pieces of regulations were being worked on, revised, amended to that point, and then those converged, the policy exemption sunset and you move on. So I like that idea. Um, since we, since there seemed to be a little bit of consternation about the use of SUP, of SUP in this to create a stopgap, 
that's what I was saying that, you know, the code that it was written with an intent, adding the SUP was creating a stopgap. And so now I think with the moratorium, you take that piece away, but you create more opportunity with it. And that, in my opinion, is how I see it. And I would add, I mean, both to, to Commissioner Sella's point and, well, everyone's point who's, who've talked about this is we clearly want to keep a balance in downtown of retailers and, and others. And so, you know, we've, we've adopted the downtown master plan, um, but we still haven't fully implemented it in the ways. And, and how do we um, create better opportunities for retailers? How do we create more destinations? And how do we, frankly, redevelop? I mean, as we start talking about RFPs for downtown lots and we start talking about parking garages and we start talking about, um, you know, destination downtown, we could see, you know, um, needing to adopt code languages to, to help make all that happen. And again, having that as part of the overall process probably makes sense. So, Mayor, you, you're getting me to come around here. Give me to, to come around on this. Um, I guess I would want, Randy, maybe this is for you. I mean, if we deferred this and then directed you to bring, to bring us, us back a different moratorium that everyone could look at and make sure it, and then we could, you know, if then if we adopted that, we could, you know, just leave this deferred or, you know, kill it. But I guess I'd rather have this deferred to that same case in case we can't come up with a moratorium language we like. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney again. It would be my recommendation or my suggestion that this be deferred. That will give our office a little time to look at the moratorium because I was kind of floated tonight and we haven't really had a lot of time to really delve into it deeply. I'm, you know, of the opinion that can probably be done in this situation. We did it somewhat similarly for the the parklets, but I would feel more comfortable if we had a little more time to look at it and then we bring back maybe a resolution or an idea or we come back and say we can't do it and then we have to revisit this. But I think maybe a, a deferral until we have an opportunity to look at this issue a little deeper would be uh, helpful. You certainly think, can we do that before John Brown's um, license expires? Uh, this Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney, yes, I would anticipate sometime in December, early December. I mean, maybe the maybe the second meeting in December, if, if we had time, we could, you know, fit into an agenda. So, yes, we would want to do it that way. Thank you again, Randy. Um, is that uh, direction enough for all of us? I don't know that we need a motion for that. You move to yeah, a motion. motion to oh, okay. Do we need a motion to defer to a specific date or... December. Yes. A December meeting. That gives them a little flexibility. Okay. End of the year. Do I have any motions? Mm, yes. Yeah. I'll move to defer the proposed text amendment TA 22-00249 to... Um, do we direct staff also to, to bring back the moratorium language and then also direct staff to bring back moratorium language that will equitably um, treat all the businesses in the downtown district? Um, I think that's it. Sometime yep. in December? Yeah, by the end of, end of the year. How's that? Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate it. Um, commissioners, I appreciate you. And thank you for coming. And thank you for bringing this to us. Um, 
It really is valuable and important. Mary, yeah. thank you. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to uh, receiving the solid waste rates presentation and consider adopting on first reading ordinance 9956. Can't hear you. <laughs> I see you. But <laughs> we see you, yeah. but can't hear you. Any sound now? Yeah, Great. there you are. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, many Zoom locations that I'm logging into today. So, um, good evening. Uh, thank you, Angela Buzzard, uh, General Manager of Administration with MSO. And going to screen share here. Um, we have a few folks from our team that are going to present tonight and cover our recommendations for 2023 solid waste rates. So let me pull it up real quick. One second. There we go. Are we able to see my screen there? Yes. Okay, great. Um, and we'll go back on the slide. So again, um, get started here. Um, thank you guys for taking time to chat with us this evening about the rate recommendations that we have and the first reading of the ordinance that we have um, in front of you tonight as well. So the, I'll just kick us off here with a couple of points. Um, that we, again, as a staff member talked about, we enlisted the support um, with Burns and McDonald to do our, our rate setting this year. And one of the pillars that we keep in mind as a part of that are obviously the strategic plan indicators that we are trying to accomplish as a part of solid waste. Um, I just wanted to have those in front of you and um, that SWN 9 is one that we actually don't have a target set for. So we're still working on setting that target and, and measuring our performance there. And then SWN 11 is actually a target that we are not currently meeting looking at our employee engagement index. But as we look at the KPIs related to solid waste, we actually um, identified through a recent MSO action planning session that we need to further develop KPIs to really measure the performance of our solid waste division. So that is on our agenda for uh, 2023 to really look at that and, and have some better metrics and, and measures to talk through as we look at performance with solid waste and related to the strategic plan. The other component, I'm actually, that was just a short intro. Um, Mike Lawless, Deputy Director of MSO, is going to take over this next slide and a couple from here and talk about our the coordination with our new um, MRF agreement that you guys are well aware of. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Mike Lawless, Deputy Director for Municipal Services and Operations. Sorry. <laughs> As you say, that was quick, bit. Mike. <laughs> Man, we want to get through this fast tonight. Um, so, um, so the first thing that um, I'm going to talk about tonight is the new MRF agreement that we have with HAMS. Um, that's something that you all saw just about a month ago. Um, we have a new um, agreement with them for processing our um, recycling materials. Um, and that does play uh, a role in the, the rates that you all are um, 
looking at tonight. Um, just a little bit about the agreement. It's a it's a, a five year initial agreement um, with the ability to renew that for um, two additional five year terms um, as we go as we go forward. Um, one of the things that um, is important for you all to know is that the the financial impacts of that of this agreement that that were approved are incorporated into the model and the rates that we're presenting for you all tonight. Um, and then just a little bit about some of the, the details of the agreement. Um, it does include higher processing fees, um, but, or and, it also includes um, uh, a better rebate um, for the, the sale of those recyclable materials. Um, and, and really that's a recognition of the volatility in the recycling market um, and that um, it's, it's really kind of a shared risk between um, as well as the city. And, and really, when the markets are good, then we believe that the city benefits more from that under this new agreement. However, when the markets are down, um, those um, rebates are smaller. And they, um, uh, you know, we have less um, reduction in that um, processing fee, or maybe even no reduction, depending on how the markets are. Um, but really, you know, that's a recognition that we want and need um, that recycling facility to be here in order to serve that need um, uh, for recycling in the community. Um, you know, um, another thing that we that we have that um, we kind of wanted to point out about the agreement is that there are a couple of items that that have been allowed in the past that are no longer allowed and that one is scrap metal and the other is um, actually shredded paper and and really it's not that they're not recyclable materials but it's more about the processing and what it does to the equipment and um you know at the recycling facility so scrap metal um, you know, there is a market for that, but, but putting it in the recycle bin isn't necessarily the way to do that. Um, we have metal, metal recyclers in town that will take that kind of thing, um, but it just, it, 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 you know, has a tendency to uh, bog down the, the processing at the facility and um, kind of the same with the shredded paper. Um, we like paper, we just don't want it to be shredded. And, and the way that it ends up um, kind of all over the floor out there um, isn't very um, conducive to the recycling process. So um, those are a couple of things that, that aren't allowed. And um, really that kind of leads into the next bullet there about community education. So not only do we need to educate the community about the changes um, to scrap metal and to paper, but one of the things that um, is really a concern is batteries that are ending up in the recycling bins. Um, those can lead to fires, um, specifically the lithium ion batteries. It's not that we, there isn't a, a way to recycle those, it's just not in the recycling cart um, for our single um, We have household hazardous waste that's available to take those. Um, we're happy to do that. It's just, you know, we have to, to do a, a better job, not a better job, but we need to do a job of educating the public on where those materials belong and how they get recycled and that it isn't always just in that recycle bin. Um, so one of the things that's in the, in the agreement is that 
we're going to the city as part of our education process is that we will um, uh, have about $25,000 over the first two years to try to do that education process, get the word out, um, change the covers that we have on, on some of the recycle bins, try to get um, some things, um, labeling about no batteries, you know, that kind of thing. Um, also on the, the commercial corrugated cardboard, um, one of the items that we talked uh, quite at length about during our negotiations was uh, moisture in that cardboard. And so um, that's one of the other educational topics that we'll have is, you know, trying to keep those covers closed in order to uh, limit the amount of moisture that that gets in the in the containers um, when it rains. And then finally, um, uh, just the last item there is is part of the agreement is that we um, will increase our uh, volume of recyclable materials um, about 250 tons a year um, over the course of the five years. And and again, to me, that goes back to educating um, the community on what we can recycle and how to recycle, especially with um, some of the multifamily customers um, that we have. So I think that covers that slide. Um, the next one is just to talk a little bit about some of the projects that we have um, um, for, <coughs> sorry, had to get my sheet there. Um, so the first one down there is um, smart truck technology. And so what we're trying to do is provide um, better customer service through that project. Um, and we can do that as we have better data more readily available at our fingertips um, for not only um, the supervisory staff and our um, collection staff, but also the customer service reps so that we can get that data in almost real time as we're doing the collection and, and have better information as people have questions um, for our customers. So that's one of the projects that, um, um, that we're working on. Um, the other one is equipment replacement. Um, we have about 60 trucks and um, you know they, they take a, a lot of wear and tear in the course of that collection process. And so, you know, um, one of those is, you know, making sure that we keep that equipment rotated and refreshed. Um, and then the other thing is that we have to look at is, you know, the future of that replacement is going to change as we begin to look at fleet transition to alternative fuels or more um, clean fuels. Um, those uh, equipment replacement prices are um, considerably higher than what we're paying today. And so um, making sure that we have that as we go forward in our rates is something that that we want to make sure um, is there. Um, the alley rehabilitation project, um, we completed our first alley rehab project this year, which um, solid waste pays a portion of that. Um, and that's been well received with the staff. Um, it makes their collection much easier. Um, and, you know, we want to continue that that alley rehab uh, project going forward because we think um, that's a win-win for um, both the condition of the alleys as well as the, the safety of our workers um, collecting the trash. Um, 
asset management. Um, Solid Waste is participating in the strategic asset management plan um, for planning and readiness. Um, we will also be uh, having a role in the um, CityWorks work order management system. Um, solid waste isn't necessarily first on the, the list of those, but um, it is an important piece and um, will be more important as we go forward, especially as we get better data from the smart truck project. And then I can't repeat it enough, but um, customer education is, is really almost a project in itself is getting that word out about the changes and making sure that, um, you know, that we're trying to do that on a, on a regular basis. Um, and in fact, we're, um, we've started that already. Um, and we have our first meeting with Dan uh, coming up in December to kind of share some of the ideas that we have um, for rollout at the first of the year. And then finally, just other future projects that um, kind of, uh, you know, they're they're not here yet, but it's something that we have to keep our eyes on is the uh, operations field campus and specifically um, solid waste participation in central maintenance garage, as well as uh, new solid waste facilities. So those are all projects that um, play into the rates that we're talking about tonight. Thanks, Mike. Uh, appreciate that. So next we have a few slides um, from Seth Cunningham. He's with Burns and McDonald and he's been our project manager on um, our rate model and has been uh, doing this with us for a couple of years. So he's going to talk about some of the factors that went into the model and then obviously the recommendations we have before you tonight as well. Right. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, right, right. Uh, yes, uh, Seth Cunningham with, with Burns and McDonald. Um, and I'll, I'll go over a few slides, just providing some context about um, what we had built into the model, as well as some of the results for um, the, the forecasting that we did to look at uh, not only you know rates today, but kind of having a, a, a further outlook as well. So we had collaborated with city staff to analyze you know the current rates um, or the current cost, I should say, historical cost, um, but really took into consideration as well. Um, the current expected trends um, to forecast costs for the system for the next six years. Um, for example, you hear a lot about um, inflation. It's been a hot topic um, lately, and it's you know it's been higher this year um, than historically. And so we built in you know some higher inflation for cost in the near term, um, so that that we're, we're current, you know trying to reflect some of the realities of the solid waste system there. And then, um, you know, we also evaluated costs such as the you know, planned equipment repairs and maintenance, fuel costs, personnel costs, um, supplies and materials that go along with operating the system, um, as well as the, the capital spending, and, you know, a lot of which um, Mike had covered on the, on the um, previous slide, because uh, it's really important for us to forecast out these costs. So that you know we're making short term shorter term decisions, you know, really with uh, the long term also in mind. Um, next slide. So this next slide summarizes some of the key uh, recommended rates um, for solid waste rates. There's there's quite a few different rates. So this is um, summarized um, for a few of the, of the key rates for the system. Um, so the, the first one on the list is the single family or single dwelling residential unit. Um, and so the recommended rate increase is, is 3%. Um, 
um, which would equate to 60 cents per household per month. Um, for multifamily residential, um, that would be also recommending a 3%, um, which would equate to 48 cents per household per month. Uh, for roll-off services, um, and this was an, an updated number um, than what was initially published, but um, a 6% increase, and, and what's shown here of $10.92 is per collection. Um, and and that, that's an average number over all the various types of, of open-top roll-off uh, services that are, are provided in the city. Um, the next is the, the dumpster services, so the commercial front load and re rear load dumpster, um, and recommending a 5% increase there. Um, there's, there's quite a few different services for that one, so we didn't identify a specific number. Um, so, so, for example, when you have a twice a week collection of a six cubic yard container, whatever that current rate is, though, you know, a 5% increase on, on that rate. <laughs> the next is the commercial cart customer. So those are usually smaller businesses um, and that would have a cart similar to a single family home. Um, and so 5% um, increase there, which would be $1.37 uh, per month. Um, the next is, is downtown. Um, and that's showing a little bit higher of an increase than some of the others at 10% and, and an average of across all customers of, of 1463. And, and part of the reason there is just when we look at the resources required to provide services to those downtown customers um, in terms of being um, the rear load collection vehicles um, and rear load containers were um, requires just more staff time to collect those. Just the, um, the system wasn't recovering the costs associated with providing that service with the rates in place. So looking to adjust that over time try to get the rates in alignment with the cost. Um, and the last one was a small increase for the recycling services provided to the schools of 3% um, or $1.20 per month. Next slide. Yep. So I, I talked about um, forecasting out some of the cost. And so kind of a busy graph. So I'll, I'll kind of walk through some aspects of this. And so there's what we're showing here, this is showing net revenue. And so this is looking at you know, anything above zero means that there's more um, revenues collected uh, or projected to be collected than the expenses incurred. And then for there's, there's a series of line graphs um, here and the line graphs represent some of the different kind of categories of service area. So the, the lighter blue line is the single family, multifamily combined. Um, the purple or the green line is roll-off services. Um, the purple line is combined commercial services, front load, rear load, and recycling. Um, and then last, the, the orange line is, um, is the downtown customers. And so when you combine all those together, the bar part of this graph represents all those combined. And so what we're showing is with those rate increases on the prior slide, um, it would still be operating at a, at a deficit in fiscal year 23 um, and relying on um, some of the positive uh, unrestricted net position that the solid waste fund has. Um, and then building some, you know, getting to a positive position in 24 and 25 for the net revenue uh, but you can see it, it takes a dip down in 26 um, 
a little bit of rebound in 27 and then a dip again in 28. And you're, that's largely based on the current projections of the impact of some of the solid waste operations campus, or the, sorry, the operations campus that, that Mike had mentioned and um, the allocation of some of those costs to solid waste. And so this is the, the current estimate of costs associated with that and the debt service um, related to those capital projects. Um, and so, yeah, that makes, go ahead and Angela, that's fine. Um, and so the reason why we're still looking at, um, you know, some, some, I think what I would consider, you know, reasonable rate increases for this year, I say reasonable because when you look at, you know, cost, um, inflationary costs um, across a lot of the different elements, you know, we're seeing inflation that, you know, six, eight, 10% in some cases. Um, and the reason why we're doing that while there is still a positive um, unrestricted net position, and I guess I'm going to back up and explain, <laughs> explain this graph here. Um, the, the lower line that's in red is the target unrestricted net position for the solid waste operation. And as costs increase over time, so that target also increases. And the upper line or the green line is the, is the balance and projected balance. And so, you know, currently there's a, there's a healthy um, balance where it exceeds the target, but as the, um, the, the debt service for the operations center comes online in 26, 27, 28, that, that balance starts to, to trail down and, and um, kind of heading toward the target there. And so what we're trying to do with, with the rate increases, if we, if we deferred rate increases, um, over the next couple of years, that that positive net position would come down sooner. In order for it to keep it above the target, there'd have to be pretty significant rate increases. So we're trying to maintain that balance so that when the, the debt service associated with that project come online, it provides a little more um, you know, runway for the solid waste system to kind of ease into the, the rates required to fully recover the cost and not have to do it suddenly. Thank you, Seth. I appreciate that. Um, I just have a couple more slides here, and then we will pause and, and open it up for questions from the entire team. So in addition to the rate recommendations, we've been also working on a number of adjustments with various service lines. And so we wanted to provide updates on, on those components as well. Um, one of those is that we are looking to um, make adjustments to our roll-off service billing. And this will be working with Christy Webb and her team in finance in that uh, we thought we'd be able to actually do it a little sooner, but we really found that the complexity of our roll-off operations can't be um, covered by the um, infinity system that we have right now with utility billing and that we have implemented. So we do need additional time to evaluate other technology solutions um, to be able to meet that the complexity of the operational need of our roll-off services. And we'll be starting to evaluate that next year and look at implementation over the next year or two. Um, we're also, as a part of the rate model, which we did point out in the staff memo, that while we're not looking at putting this in place for 23, um, so we're not asking for a rate adoption, we are asking for um, um, granting for us to move forward with an education process related to us putting in place uh, a fee for commercial cardboard recycling. So right now there is no fee in place. It's been in kind of a, a, a long-standing pilot phase, if you will. And we do think that we need to start uh, cost recovering for some of that service. 
So the recommendation is for us to start putting that rate in place for 24 um, with that education for customers starting in 23. And that fee as built into the rate model that Seth, Seth provided as we look out in the future would be a 50% rate of the equivalent trash collection service um, and really putting that in place to provide, in, provide some cost recovery to the program, but also to keep that incentive in place for um, continuing to uh, divert that from our waste stream and, and meet our environmental sustainability goals as well. Lastly, we did want to acknowledge that we certainly recognize that there's an interest in additional analysis of the viability of commercial single stream services. And, you know, quite frankly, um, with staff shortages this year, it just was not in the cards for us. So um, analysis going forward um, wasn't possible this year, but we're looking at evaluating that um, once we get additional staffing, um, looking at it in 23. So those are some additional updates as far as some of our service lines. And um, just to wrap us up, then um, the guidance we're looking for this evening is really adopting the ordinance that we have in front of you on for first reading. It's pretty, pretty simple there. And then wanted to give you a couple of notes on next steps that you will be seeing us again um, before this year is up in that we will be bringing for you uh, stormwater rates as well as um, system development charges. Um, we are planning to have that on the December 13th agenda. <clears throat> so with that, I'd like to um, open it up for questions from the group and there's um, several from our team that are available to field your questions. Thank you, Angela. Are there any questions? I have a question. Is there a reason why we're not seeing all these rate um, proposals at one time? Yes. So there is a very good reason for that. Um, so typically we do like to provide those together as there, as you'll see on the city manager's um, agenda report tonight. We went through a pretty intensive auditing process for our solid waste rate um, for our billing um, to do an audit for field matching billing data. Uh, throughout this year, and we did the same with stormwater. And so due to that, we weren't able to get those with water and wastewater rates as we typically would earlier in the year. And so um, we're having to do it a little bit delayed because the data wasn't available. Uh, but but we do intend, now that we've kind of gone through that auditing process, to align these rate adoptions, um, you know, more coincide with each other next year. Water and wastewater is a bigger lift in updating in the billing system, so we certainly didn't want to wait and do those as late in the, the year as we are addressing solid waste and stormwater. Um, but yes, ideally we would like to get that those back in alignment and bring it for you together. And a couple questions. Am I correct that this is just a one year? Just a one we're just adopting the rates for 2023, unlike we looked at three-year rate model for the others? Correct. So it is, this is a one-year rate adoption, as well as um, stormwater that we plan to bring in front of you. We're looking at a one-year rate adoption there as well. So when we're looking at the, that chart on the unrestricted uh, cash balance, does that have an assumption of what in relation to rates? If we, if we go ahead, so... Yeah, yeah, Seth Cunningham, Burns McDonald. So the assumption for that the graph um, that um, both kind of the bar graph and, and their interchange net position was that they were fairly consistent rates that were shown for 23 
would also apply to future years. Meaning we not have a rate increase or that we do 3% every year? 3% every year. Yeah, 3% every year. That's what I assumed. I just wanted to. Yeah. Um, I certainly appreciate and, and, that. Yeah. And, and we talked about a, a couple different scenarios, but if we, if we didn't do that, then there would have to be pretty substantial rate increases toward the end of that forecast to start to uh, account for that um, projected debt service. That's how I understood it. And, and I appreciate that. I don't, I, I mean, I think 3% is much better than 0, 0, 10%, you know, um, for sure. Thank you for that. But I just want to be clear on that. Any other questions? Thank you again. Uh, let's make sure there's no public comment on this item. Is there any public comment online? Mayor, I'm not seeing any hands raised. All right, thank you. Let's bring it back to the commission. Any discussion? <clears throat> I think these are reasonable um, increases. Good to see a breakdown of how they apply and how it imp impacts our bottom line basically for the next five years. So I do appreciate the work that staff has put into mm -hmm. this. And, and I, I mean, I do, I do appreciate that, as I just said, one, that we don't want, you know, uh, I, I think small increments are better. But two, the fact that we all, um, that the recommendation did come to us with spending down a a decent chunk of of that recognizing that, um, that this is not the best time for a big increase so also appreciate staff looking at that and um, you know using some of that fund balance I think it's what 450 odd some thousand ish yeah. um, in fund balance to to keep that in, in, in line so appreciate that consideration as well yeah I think it's a wise use of our fund balance <clears throat> We're so excited. Does anybody have a motion? <laughs> All right. Move to adopt on first reading ordinance number 9956. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Great work. Thank you. Thanks for being Thank here. You. <clears throat> um, that brings us to our update on the city brand refresh project. Porter, it looks like that might be you. I just thought those people hanging. Oh, I just thought, yeah, I did too. <laughs> just thought you were loitering out there. We love to loiter. <laughs> Thank you, Mayor. I'm going to actually pass this on to Maureen Brady, our brand manager, to introduce our um, friends from Guide Studio. Hello, everybody. Thanks for staying for us tonight. Like Porter said, my name is Maureen Brady, and I am the brand manager for the city of Lawrence. I work with him in the Department of Communications and Creative Resources. So I'm here to briefly, I promise briefly, introduce the Brand Refresh Project, and then I'm going to let our consultants from Guide Studio do the bulk of the talking about the work we've been doing over the past few months. To start, oh, I should, to start, I'm going to make this full screen. Oh, sorry. So to start, I want to talk about why we're... Sure, while you're out. Yeah, you have to... Oh, sorry, Kurt. That's okay. No rush. <laughs> Everybody goes through it. <laughs> From Zoom. No. Yeah. I don't know how. Yes, you do. <laughs> well, I'm not in Zoom. So, uh, that, that little box oh, I see. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> 
I just needed your support, Porter. There you go. Okay. I'll be brief now. <laughs> um, so we are building a brand toolkit to provide a consistent written and visual representation of our city, support economic development, elevate community pride, and foster collaboration, and finally manage our reputation. So we started this brand refresh in response to our strategic plan goals around the community engagement commitment, most notably in response to improving resident satisfaction with availability, timeliness, and access to information. While some may view a brand refresh as just a logo update or a change to our visual identity, this work is really much more holistic and thinking about how we communicate about who we are as the city of Lawrence and where we're going into the future so that we can do it more strategically and purposefully um, and make sure other people understand us the way we want to be understood. This will include this brand refresh work will include an implementation plan to bring our vision to life and brand guidelines that give us guardrails for how our departments and team members should be communicating about the city of Lawrence. The work also ties in several of our other what I call community perception based progress indicators, which are the progress indicators that measure how our residents see <clears throat> different outcome areas of our strategic plan. So, for example, um, it is our intention to have a brand refresh that reinforces the idea of Lawrence as a good or very good place to live, as Lawrence with a fantastic amount of arts, diverse culture and events, and with Lawrence as a great place for businesses to do business. So it'll help with communications and will also help reinforce a lot of those ideas that we are doing through our strategic plan work and making them more obvious. So with that, tie into the strategic plan, I am going to pass it over to Brian Evans from Guide Studio, and he is going to present more about the work we've been doing. Thanks, Maureen. Uh, good evening, commissioners, uh, city staff, members of the public. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to present this update to you. This is a really exciting project, so we're happy to be here uh, back in Lawrence. Actually, we've been here before, um, so we're excited to be here to talk to you tonight about the branding uh, project. So just to start off, as Maureen mentioned, um, when we talk about brand, it, it's it's a lot more than a logo. I know that's where most people, when they think of brand, that's what they think of, the, the look, the feel. Um, but it's really everything that's connected to your place, everything that tells your story. Um, anything that a person who interacts with the city, that becomes part of your brand, how that interaction plays off. So I'm going to share a bunch of the brand components that we've been working on with you today, including that visual part. But again, just to realize there's, there's a lot more behind this than just, just a logo. So we worked together from early on in this project to create brand objectives for the city of Lawrence, um, to create a brand that has buy-in from the community and support from internal audiences brings consistency to city departments with a style, and, style guide and tools to help implement, utilizes a phased implementation plan that is feasible to use and implement, and increases popularity and trust among the community. So why does your place need to be branded? Um, when your city invests in brand building, it creates a platform. So there's so many parts of that tools that, that, that build into that platform, and it helps you address challenges. It can achieve a consistent representation of your city for just internally and also externally, support economic development initiatives by positioning you to compete for residents, businesses, and visitors, a growing sense of community pride that fosters collaboration amongst your people, and success with reputation management by helping to shed unfavorable perceptions. And we're going to talk more about perceptions shortly. 
So we help communities and place-based organizations whose image might not match up exactly with the quality of their place, who are having trouble telling their story in a purposeful way, who are struggling to manage their image, who are struggling where to, with where to start with creating a lasting uh, experience of place, who are lacking the proper communication tools to reach their audiences, and audience is something, another thing we're going to go over with you guys this evening, who have internal stakeholders that are misaligned. Their people are using different logos, different messages, and wasting time and money recreating the wheel every time some new thing has to go out and who have lots of assets and experiences to offer, but are having trouble building awareness of those assets and experiences. So I do wanna talk a little bit about the process, how we got here today. Um, we're nearing the end of this project, but we do, we do have a bit of a way to go. Um, but we started back in April, May, when we were originally engaged uh, by Porter and his team uh, by building a project website, and that's still available today. That has updates, it's up to date. So you have, people have always been able to see where we are in the process, what exactly we're doing, and be able to keep track of, of how we're moving through. Um, we did an initial public perception survey with 536 <clears throat> responses, which is actually really pretty good. Um, this is a very engaged community. Um, so that was one of, also one of the first steps. And we also took a look at all the materials that you currently have from a bunch of different departments and started to really look at those and analyze them and start to understand how you're currently using brand and how that might start to shift in the future. So in June, um, several of us actually took a trip out here. Um, we had a bunch of meetings. So we started off with a brand discovery workshop for our steering committee. Uh, the steering committee folks, the, uh, who's on that is actually on that website as well. So you can take a look at that. Mary, you've been a part of that. Uh, we thank you for that. Um, so this was a, a first step to get like, some people are gonna be close to the process and they've been a touch point throughout the process too. Um, it's a very iterative and interactive process with that group. So we've had lots of back and forth, lots of conversations that's who we've been bringing our work to to see where we're hitting and where we might need to make adjustments we also did a brand discovery session with stakeholders and that was just a different group of people from throughout the community business owners other people involved in different ways and then there was also a public workshop that we held that was open to anybody who would like to come <clears throat> and of course, since we were here, we did quite a bit of touring. We uh, drove around, around around Lawrence, and then we also walked around, even though it was 100 degrees when we were here. Uh, we still did a lot of walking, especially around downtown. And I have to say, we were um, actually quite smitten with 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 the place. And we, uh, Gina, had the opportunity to come with me this time, and so we drove around this morning. And it's just it's such a cool place. There's so many cool things to see. Um, moving on from that is uh, kind of the, what we're wrapping up now. Um, so the brand strategy development, which we're gonna share those components with you today, and the brand images, uh, image and identity development. Um, I'll touch briefly on the next steps of what's coming, but we'll, we'll talk more about that when we, when we finish up. Um, and that's the brand implementation workshop and draft recommendations. Uh, one of the reasons we were in town this week was to conduct um, a few sessions around implementation, which is just a really critical part of this process that we'll talk more about, and also about brand voice, which is really about how people that are talking about your city within the city are actually projecting. So, and having that all be in alignment, whether it's written, whether it's actually verbal. So when you're speaking as a city, it's a, it's a consistent tone. There's so much about brand and how to use it and how what it can do for you is about consistency. 
So I am going to go through a few highlights from that brand strategy document. And these are some of these foundational pieces that are going to help build marketing and messaging. Um, the things I'm going to share with you are what we call internal facing. Um, as of right now, that means they're for the city. They're for Porter and his staff. They're for anybody who's using um, these brand elements to communicate, to market. Um, so, so these are not things that are going to be seen generally by the public. That doesn't mean some of these might be able to be kind of massaged a bit and become external facing so that they are things that are going out. So just keep that in mind as you're seeing these, that these are for, these are for us to make decisions. So perceptions, which I mentioned briefly, um, we look at how members of the community, maybe even how people outside of the community, what they perceive about Lawrence when they think about Lawrence. Um, so I'm going to go through these. There's four of them. Uh, the first is, and you'll see this format. We kind of have the, the crossed out you can see up there. And the idea is, what's that perception? And then how can we start to reframe what that perception might be, um, especially, you know, specifically using these brand tools? And how can the brand tools we're building start to reframe those perceptions? So the first, our past defines us. And the, the reframing is, our past guides us. So the perception, the city's story history is Lawrence. We heard so much about this. It's the, the history is so ingrained in this place. Um, but there's, there's more than that. The reality is we own our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The people of Lawrence fought and died to establish Kansas as a free state and at the same time ignored the plights and rights of our indigenous people. We do have a storied history, but it's not who we are. It provides valuable insight and direction for our present and future, whether it's rebuilding after a fall, working to amend past wrongs, or striving for inclusion and equity for our residents. Our history guides us to continually evolve what it means to be free people. So next, a city divided, and we're all Lawrence. Perception, there are different parts of Lawrence, each feeling like its own separate community. In reality, Lawrence has a lot of looks. There's the mixed-use downtown, with apartments over fun and funky retail and entertainment, neighborhoods full of eclectic and expressive homes to the immediate north and east, and clusters of homes ranging from apartments to estates mixed with convenience retail and employment centers to the west. We also have an ever-changing population of students that add a different flavor to the community. Regardless of who you are or what area of town you call home, we're all Lawrence, and we get that it takes all different kinds of people to make a community complete. So the next, nothing ever changes, and our change is deliberate. So the perception, why hasn't the city taken care of, and fill in the blank here. The reality, while there are a lot of great things in Lawrence, like a lot of large cities, there is always work to be done. We are a community of compassionate and passionate people who work toward tackling big issues related to the quality of life that can be offered to all our people in the city. Our engagement is our strength. It takes time to listen, to plan, and to take action. But we are tenacious in our belief that all voices have a place at the table. Sharing ideas, determining solutions, and working together to create a community where all enjoy life and feel at home. And finally, we're a progressive community we are an open-minded and accepting community. As a blue, the perception, as a blue dot in a red state, Lawrence must be progressive. The reality, while Lawrence is known as a liberal stronghold in a conservative state, we are more focused on progress as an action versus ideology. 
Our people are rooted in activism, respect for each other, and curious about new ideas and different points of view. We get loud when we don't like the direction the city is going and fight hard to protect our history and traditions. But we also like to debate and work together on meaningful and deliberate change. So one of the next pieces of the brand platform are your distinct advantages. And these are the things that, that set you apart from peer communities, from neighboring communities, or even competing cities. And this is where it starts to shift a little bit. This is the, really the foundation that's going to be for external messaging. So these are those ones that start to, to speak more to people outside the city. So first, you do you. All kinds of people call Lawrence home, and they're all welcome and have a place at the table in our community. We don't put on airs here, and we accept and respect each other regardless of who we are, what we look like, how we live, or how we choose to express ourselves. Next, no plan necessary. In Lawrence, all you have to do is show up. There's always plenty going on. Mass Street is the heart of town, offering loads of great places to shop, dine, drink, or explore the city's amazing arts and culture scene. Looking for something more active? Our parks and riverfront and lake offer plenty of opportunities to bike, walk, jog, or just take in the natural beauty. We have world-class facilities for sports, both to play and to be a spectator. Looking for some hometown charm? Enjoy our long-held community events. The best part, you're always going to run into folks you know. Next, express yourself. Into the music and art scene, Lawrence is definitely the place for you. Whether you're a creative looking for a place to practice your trade or someone who appreciates the self-expression of others, we are a home to dozens of art studios, organizations, and shops, music venues, and lots of other folks who love sharing their talents with the world, and loads of others who love looking and listening. And finally, learning for life. In Lawrence, learning is a way of life. We're home to two major universities, a top-notch public school system, a great library, and seemingly limitless courses and classes for people in every stage of life. Even when you're not officially learning in Lawrence, you're still taking in the arts and culture and getting in touch with nature and appreciating new and inspiring ideas provided by our thriving arts and culture scene and our fascinating residents. So all these, all these background pieces, all these tools come together in what's your positioning statement. And this is really a guidepost for how you make decisions. And that's not just about marketing communications. It's not just about brand. It can really be about anything you're discussing or debating. This is one of those things you can always turn to and say, how does this align with who we are? So your positioning statement, the city of Lawrence strives to create a supportive community where all individuals are respected, accepted, and free to be themselves. People are drawn to our city's creative energy, expressed through our eclectic yet steadfast downtown and entertaining community events. Our renowned educational institutions, arts and culture scene, and built and natural landscape inspire and sustain lifelong curiosity for all who visit or call Lawrence home. So the last piece of these, uh, kind of that brand platform is uh, a brand narrative. And this becomes, again, one of those things that's a little more external facing. And it starts to tell the story of who you are as a people. It's easy to find your place in Lawrence. We've got housing and neighborhoods for every taste. And our fun and funky yet timeless downtown is the perfect place to show the world who you are while exploring what everybody else has to offer. 
Our parks and trail keep, trails keep our residents and visitors active, engaged, and connected, and our educational opportunities are unmatched, laying the groundwork for a life full of curiosity, exploration, and learning. Whether you're here for the weekend, for college, or to make it your home, you'll love Lawrence, a community where you'll be accepted and appreciated. In Lawrence, you're free to be you. So next we are gonna roll into the logo brand look. And so we, we did quite a bit of exploration on this, um, but it really became apparent early on in the process that there's very strong feelings for existing you know, iconography surrounding the city. So the mark for Lawrence. It's a concept that captures the, the history of the city with the flame and phoenix icon. Um, but also, it really speaks to kind of the, the idea of hope and progress and moving things forward in a positive way. Um, this is, the mark itself is paired with a very bold font with just a little bit of quirkiness that just like the city has. Um, some of the words that come to mind and we were keeping in mind as, as we were working through the, uh, the, uh, the graphic part of this, resilient, curious, creative, authentic, fun-loving, proud, and strong-willed. So every mark, it's gonna be used in different ways. So we always like to make sure that black, black on white, white on black, um, which actually is quite striking for, for this particular mark. It works really well. And also knowing that there's so many different ways that you know, the, the visual identity of a city can be used from social media to things that are actually print material everywhere in between. Um, there are some options. This does allow you some flexibility in that use. Um, so you can see on the, the left is the, the primary logo. On the right is something that's a little more uh, horizontal where the, where the mark comes next to the word. And the third is what we call a badge logo, which kind of makes that ring of text around the, the icon itself. And so most people are gonna interact with this logo when they see it kind of out in the wild. So we're showing you some ideas of what that's gonna look like. Um, so business cards there, um, you can see a window. This could be right outside, right out these doors here on City Hall, how that'll look, a city truck. Um, everybody loves t-shirts and swag. And again, you can see through some of these uh, representations what that can look like as you start to play with how the logo can be broken out. It shows that flexibility again. And this is, this is limitless. I mean, we could, we could do these all day, but uh, just the, the possibilities for how to get this. And, and we really think it's something that'll be embraced and that people are gonna want to, want to have on their you know, merchandise and, and be proud to show off. So next steps, I'm just gonna show you a few slides of what's coming, and, and these are example images um, from that implementation piece. Um, and this is, again, just such a critical part of this process. Um, we, we can create a great logo for you like we've done. Um, we can give you all those tools, but if we just kind of drop them off there, you know, that's, that's, that's not gonna work. It's not gonna be successful for you. So we really work with you to craft a plan for trying to understand what you're going to use, what you plan to use the brand for, how you plan to use it, and work together with you all 
to create a plan for how this gets rolled out, how it gets integrated. Um, so there's a few slides here that just start to show what that implementation strategy and document are going to look like. Um, there's lots of pieces of this. this again, this is like we're, this is our discovery for this. This is when we're learning from you. Um, but it's full of uh, strategies. There will be recommendations. And it's broken out into tools and tactics so you know what to use when, which pieces of the brand that I shared, which ones that we haven't even built yet. But like, at what point do you use which thing, who, which messages go to which audience? That'll all be outlined. Um, and you can see it's, I mean, it's really, it's, it's densely packed, but it's all stuff that's going to be just incredibly useful. Um, talk about training. How are the people within the city going to implement this? How are they going to learn how to use it both internally and externally? Um, recommendations around social media <clears throat> policy and guidelines. Uh, brand voice, a very important part of this. Again, that's what we, we've been working on this week. How we speak, how you speak as a city. And then even getting into you know processes with editorial calendars and, and you know what's the schedule for how you push stories out and message out. And then finally, um, an implementation checklist. And this is just, and again, this is an example. Yours will be different. But this is just a list of all the different ways the brand is going to physically touch different parts of the city internally and externally. So we collect those all in one place so you understand what's been done, when it's been done, what needs to be done, who needs to do it. Um, so it's just a one-stop place so you can really understand the process of the progress of going through and, and implementing your new brand. So the final deliverables for this product, the implementation plan we just went over, um, again, that's something we're just starting to dig into. We're, we're just, uh, just learning from you folks with that. Um, the brand style guide and brand voice, um, we are actually um, due to present a draft of that to Porter and his team in a couple weeks. Um, brand, brand launch kit templates, so these are all the templates for things like letterhead, four business cards for PowerPoint presentations. That's all part of it. And then obviously all the logo art files in multiple formats for use across different, <clears throat> different platforms. So thank you again um, for allowing us to be here today. Um, I will say we're not done yet, but it has really been a pleasure to work with this community. Um, it's been great to be here. Um, your place and your people are really special, so thank you. Thank you. Um, any questions? Okay, let's make sure there's, you got something? No, go ahead. Okay, let's make sure there's no public <clears throat> comment. I know there is. Yeah, this is Chris Flowers. Um, I don't want to be negative, but this, I think this is kind of wasting money. Um, it said uh, there is something, you do you, everyone is accepted. So uh, I kind of disagree with that because if everyone was accepted then why are we trying to put the homeless out at like at the end of town is where the shelter is then we have that big camp i mean i i it seems like this is about trying to affect how we speak to please people instead of taking actions that please people um and i, I also, I want to know is how much is 
this rebranding re going to cost? Uh, we talk about logos, like, is it going to cost money to replace the flame with a Phoenix now? Um, how much is it going to cost to put this logo on our, our city vehicles? Um, like, I think there's going to be other costs coming with this. And I think the money would be better suited if you started spending it on the homeless, on things that we actually need, instead of spending it on basically trying to figure out how to how to to sell people that this stuff's not a problem. That's kind of. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like we could be using this money to be actually bettering the community instead of bettering how we're presenting problems. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone online who has any public comment? Mayor, I am not seeing any hands raised. All right, thank you. Uh, any other questions or comments, commissioners? And what's the anticipated rollout for this <clears throat> changes that will occur with all of our headers and decals and sure. So I mean that's all part of the implementation plan. So we're I mean we're literally just having a conversation with Porter and the team earlier today. So the answer is we don't know yet. Um, we're going to work together to establish what that timeline is. But again, as mentioned, um, we definitely concentrate on you know looking at phased approaches to this because we do realize yes there are resources involved um you can't just flip a switch and everything's and everything's new um so we're working together on that on that timeline um we'll certainly have updates you can look to porter and his team for updates on when that is um but again just stress that we really do look at phasing um these things out so that it's not it's not such a burden all at once to do this so that's that's part of the that's part of the phase we're getting into just now Thank you. First of all, I certainly appreciate your, your position statement and your branding statement. I think a lot of that, you know, I think is important. And I think we also have to just, as a side note, continue to look how we work that some into our strategic plan as we continue to work and, and bind those together. I don't know if that's part of the implementation plan, but, um, you know, some of that language I think is, is very useful. Um, this is probably a I don't know. Maybe it's, I'm an engineer, so I, I'm not as much into logos. I know it's not all about the logos, but I've always been su surprised that how many people think our current logos a flame and not a phoenix. You know, they don't see the phoenix part of that. Um, and you know, I think your design changes that a little bit and and and, and highlights the phoenix part of that. I didn't really ever see any mention of the phoenix or the reason we have the phoenix in any of your materials and i'm sure that's been talked about but is there something in the implementation that we should be saying about that particular logo or that particular yeah absolutely the the external messaging and part of your story will start to reflect that um again it's it's so ingrained in this place the the idea of the phoenix and raising from the ashes and so when when we were thinking about that it really was about you know, at this moment in time, is that is that something that's continually happening? And it's, it's it's more it's less about it's certainly tied to the history of your place, but it's more about that forward looking that that future looking piece. Um, so yeah, when we when we talk about the logo and we, we presented that, we definitely got into the the meaning behind that. But you're absolutely right. 
Um, when we look externally messaging wise, that's something that will be a key is to actually explain why that's there and what's the reason for it. Um, uh, just personally on a side note that uh, you guys are great to work with, work with, and, uh, you guys done a fantastic job. And I really think the, uh, colors you've chosen make it pop as opposed to, um, I, I thought it was great before, but you can really discern, uh, to, uh, uh, Commissioner Finkeldy's point, the, the Phoenix or the flame, what have you, whatever image you choose, um, to be there. So, um, I think you guys are heading in the right direction and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see exactly when we can roll this out and, you know, get this, uh, the next step of this process started. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Do we have an idea what it's going to cost to switch over all? Not at this time. Um, there's not like, it's an inventory of like every vehicle, every shirt. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, again, there's a lot of resources, but, you know, we'll get a better idea of that when we start to think about, you know, what is the, we start to break out, you know, what are the first things that need to happen? What are the second things? What are the things that can wait more? If I may step into, I think, you know, just so people don't get intimidated by that. If you think about it, every time we buy a new vehicle currently, the, the current logo gets applied to that. Right. Um, so this isn't going to be an additional cost. We're not going to go back and take all those logos off those vehicles. It will be an incremental process. So I don't want th people to think that, to your point, that it's just a snap of the fingers and we're going to spend a ton of money to make this happen. We're going to be very selective. And as, as Brian said, we're going to work in an incremental fashion. So I think, you know, it really isn't perhaps as, as intimidating as it might sound. Thanks for that clarification, Porter. That's mm -hmm. helpful for sure. <clears throat> Did you have anything, Commissioner? Yeah. Uh, I appreciate Commissioner Finkelday uh, bringing up, you know, connecting the city's, the community's perspective of the logo being a flame and not, and where we're missing an opportunity to speak on the Phoenix, which I think there's a lot, if you know the interpretation and meaning of the Phoenix and how you juxtapose that on the history of the city. There's something to be said about that. Um, and, and I mean, it just goes back to our our publication. I mean, our our monthly publication is called The Flame. It's not called The Phoenix, so <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Uh, Good point. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, you know, I see you know, the points on the perceptions, and you know, I see the position statement as aspirational, um, inspirational as well as aspirational. Um, I think to uh, Mr. Flower's point, you know, we do have some blind spots in our community that may put this position statement to to question or it may call you to question it. Um, but it's aspirational in the sense that I think it puts in front of us as it relates to our strategic plan and as we look at our outcomes and our commitments and indicators, how do we ensure that we are living up to this expectation this expectation and the quality of service that we provide as well as what we expect of those you know in our community and so that it's reciprocal so um you know i think that's kind of where you know i sit with this that there's much aspiration in this because if you take again you can't take a snapshot and paint a broad brush with it so you know the snapshot that we're in right now one might not, you know, might say, you know, ball this up and start all over again, which we're not. Um, 
but it again shows us what we have the what we have the possibility to do based on the commitments we've made and what that looks like and how staff and how a governing body and how a community can work together to to achieve that. So that's what I see with this um, and what that looks like in further implementing it is up to is up to us as a governing body is up to city staff in that capacity. Um, so thank you uh, for that. I did have w one indirect point to make as you know we talked about this the branding is bigger than the logo for me i see this also like what is this going to look like not just in our social media but also in our website mm -hmm. um as chair of the human relations commission i would roll my eyes constantly about our website because there's potential there to for it to truly be a brand representative of of, of our city and I don't I don't you know it's functional now but I think it doesn't truly speak to the work and dedication that our that our um, that our uh, city staff uh, and and that everyone who works at the city uh, puts into it so where does that fit and this is a question more for Porter than for you but feel free to tag team it but where does that work fit into this that's definitely part of this and you're not the first person to mention that um, so we're very aware of that you know, I, I want to share that this has never been done before. Um, we have the strategic plan, which is just a great framework in so many ways. But if we don't, it's almost like a, for lack of better, sort of a personal growth opportunity for our entire organization. You know, there's times you have to really look at yourself and say, okay, where, where are my warts and, and bruises and where are my, you know, golden edges, that kind of thing. And I think this is really what's done. And I really appreciate their articulation. And I know you're seeing these documents. These took a lot of time and effort by a lot of people to really hone these down. Uh, Courtney can speak to that and others have been involved. So I, I want people to grasp the value of something <clears throat> to really know who we are as part of the strategic plan, but also who do we want to be? Right. And so with that, yeah, sorry, I'm going, I'm, I'm going off track a little bit, but, um, and certainly the website is a big part of that. And we're looking at that and we do have some budget next year for that type of thing to look at that. And with their good wisdom and advice, not only what they've done, but we also have now Taylor Ma on my team who's just taking fantastic photographs. Mm. Um, so we've really amped that level up as well. So this is our chance to really shine in a much bigger way. And all the pieces are coming together through this brand refresh process to make that a reality. <clears throat> And I, I'd just like to address so a couple of you mentioned the strategic plan. It has absolutely been top of mind throughout this process. And it has been, I mean, constantly part of the conversations we've had with you. Um, so it is very much ingrained in our thinking going into this. And I do want to just add on, you're absolutely right. Some of these things are aspirational. But I want to stress how much those are grounded in the reality of this place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it... It's, it's who you are. It's under there. It might not be exactly who you are today. You're right. But I mean, this is what we heard from, from everybody who you want to be. So it is aspirational, but it's, it's, it's not a dream. I mean, it, it's here. You're, you're ready to be there. And we're just happy to be able to help with giving you the tools to make that happen. And I couldn't agree. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I think when I say, you know, and, and to the point, aspirational is not seen as, you know, a, a slight at any of this. I say it's aspirational yeah. because there's so much in our community that that I can say with confidence that most of our most of my fellow commissioners don't know, and that we are discovering that. And so when you know, 
when you, I mean, that first slide with the perceptions that our past guides us, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of events and activities in our community that have, that are starting to bubble up that are, that should be, and hopefully will continue to guide us. And that will guide the work that we do as commissioners and guide the work that, uh, that city staff does in, in, in concert with that. And that when, you know, and I love the, the tagline, you know, I say I'm calling it a tagline because I want to use it is that we're all Lawrence because we are, you know, good, bad, and different. We are all Lawrence. And I think leading with that, allows us to see the aspiration and, and hope for what it is that is out there that we know it's just a matter of it coming all together for us to 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 be successful in moving forward. So, you know, that captured me and that re- that's what grounded me in thinking that there's so much out there for us that this is just opening and that it's going to continue to just make Lawrence what it is that we truly know that it has the ability, the potential, and that, it, I mean, that it is, but but even greater. So, so I mean, thank you for reiterating that. I, I concur with you on that. And I just hope others in the community can see there's so much more to that. And it, and I think it speaks to understanding the value and the symbol of, of, of the Phoenix and how that'll come into play at all of this. So maybe not right now, but that's up to us <laughs> as a community to, to do it. So. Maybe we're changing the name of our newsletter. Um, so yeah, thank you again. This was an amazing process. I I won't lie; I was a little suspicious of it at first, and then it turned out to be by far one of the most um, uh, informative and kind of liber- liberating experiences um, that I've had with other community members. And so um, I like that you were kind of talking earlier about elevating community pride, because I don't know if it's because we're Midwesterners or what, but we rarely, if ever, brag about ourselves. And so we and then we don't even congratulate ourselves when we do something <laughs> well. So this idea that there's something identifiable that we unite behind, like in a positive way, uh, is new for us, really. So I, I really appreciate what you've done here. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, yeah I want to I thank you for doing the work as well as staff for doing all this work. Um, I think you've given us a lot to to think about and work with. I really do appreciate that. I'm just sorry I didn't get a chance to meet you during the process at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Thank you. I hope you don't have to go to bed right away. We've still got another 20 minutes here, maybe. <laughs> maybe we can do a walk and talk on the way out. <laughs> Thank you again so much. Thank and you. thank you for coming and visiting us. Yes, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Yeah. All right. Um, that brings us to our last item, which is consider conducting a budget public hearing for amending the 2022 budget and consider adopting resolution 7455. Do I need to open the public hearing or did we already open the public hearing? Just say I, I just opened the public hearing. <laughs> there you go. You just did. <laughs> All right. Uh, where's our Jeremy at? He's there. Oh, there you are. Hello, Jeremy Wilmot, Director of Finance. Uh, thank you all for giving me this chance tonight. Um, before you, uh, you've opened the public hearing. Uh, the reason for the public hearing is to amend the 2022 adopted budget under state law. Um, you all established a, a budget. That budget could not be um, exceeded until we went through another process, which we're doing right now, uh, to establish a new spending authority. And there's two funds that we need to uh, 
raise the spending level for for 2022. Uh, the first fund is the public parking fund. Um, this is really more of a pass through, but we still need to record it on our books. Uh, these are the fees that the uh, credit card agency is charging to uh, customers who are parking uh, using the metering software. Um, and so we're collecting it on their behalf and then remitting it to them. So we're increasing revenues and expenditures by 120,000. The second one is more of a reclassification, if you will. Um, the federal funds exchange um, is a revenue um, sharing program that we do uh, through the state of Kansas for federal dollar for federal transportation dollars. Um, it's sort of flown around our budget in a few different places. Uh, over the years, and uh, we landed on uh, creating a new fund, called an, a new special revenue fund, calling it the Federal Funds Exchange, so that we can have a little bit more transparency into what those projects are, how they're funded, uh, where that money is going. So um, in order to, to do that, we need to amend the 2022 budget. Uh, the revenues uh, are the Federal Fund Exchange dollars that we anticipate receiving in 22, and then the unspent um, federal fund exchange dollars from 2021 uh, that were in the grant fund. So we're going to transfer those into this fund. We're going to put the new revenue from the state of Kansas uh, in this fund. And then those expenditures, uh, you all have already approved through the CIP process. So um, again, this is more just for classification uh, and further transparency of these dollars uh, moving forward. Um, beyond that, I'd be happy to answer any questions you all may have. Any questions? Is there any public comment on this? Is there anyone online who has any uh, public comment on this item? Mayor, I'm seeing no raised hands in Zoom. All right, let's bring it back. Um, any discussion or questions you thought of in the last two seconds? <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate you keeping in compliance with yes. the law. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, Can I make a motion? I would love to hear one. Move to adopt resolution number 7455. Oh, I'm closing the hearing now. Okay. <laughs> move we adopt resolution number 7455. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That passes five to zero. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again, Jeremy. Um, that brings us to commission items. I think I know of one. <clears throat> yeah. Um, we get, we received a letter from the county wanting clarification or verification, whichever, on our stance regarding the Walker Russa extension. I think it would be appropriate for us to have a response and how we want to do that. Just want to bring that up. Do we need to have a meeting about that, or what do we need to do? <clears throat> oh, I can. We can bring it back as an agenda item, um, and we can staff will generally outline what our options are but they're fairly narrow but uh some options to respond to them that sounds good when are you going to do that uh before the end of the year okay <laughs> now. thank you anything else i have one other item and, and i um <clears throat> i would like to um see if the commission would be interested in putting the short-term rental 
um, issue on the agenda item discuss. Specifically, I'm interested in reviewing the limitations on the number of short-term rentals you can have in the zoning of CN1, CN2, MU, CD, CC, CS, ILIG, GPI, and the H districts. Can we do a work session on that? <laughs> ABC, right? Is related to the number you the the, the yeah the limitation, limitation. three on those commercial industrial. I'm certainly willing to talk about that. We can put it under TBD. May not have time to do it this year, but <laughs> yeah, for the first of the year. <clears throat> I kind of don't wanna. Okay. But I also like talking about stuff with you, so we can do it again if you want. I I would also say we got we got new people here. They might say something totally right. different than the conversation yeah. we had last time. It's There's true. something in there I was kind of thinking differently about when I looked at it. Mm -hmm. Not what not what you're saying specifically. I hate to open a whole can of worms <clears throat> by doing that, but um, understand. There's always that possibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's my narrow scope. Mm -hmm. How narrow it is, I don't know, but mm -hmm. it's my narrow scope. Anybody else? As long as you don't recommend going back to special use permits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, can we, regarding commission items? Oh, yeah. Oh. Just in general. Wait a minute. Do, do, do we, are we Airbnbs right. in, oh, in yeah. the future? Yeah, I think, I think you got three that want to okay. you know, bring it back. So and Make sure. Okay, in keeping the narrow scope of what how she phrased it? Yes. What do you want to say? Well, I, well, seeing that you have two commissioners that are not very familiar with them, I'd like to take a look at it from a more broader scope so I can understand what we're narrowing down. So, you know, I haven't had more than one year experience in this, so I'd, I'd like to be able to see the full picture and talk about it in the context of the full picture. And if there needs to be a narrowing, that that can come into the discussion as it relates to an action item or a motion to a vote. So. Staff can give us a nice little book report about yeah. the history yeah, of our sure. decision making yep. and, yeah. uh, sure. and how it sure. right. how it plays out in in each of those um, yeah. zoning. Okay, got it. Um, time frame wise, uh, probably past the first of the year. Um, I know change. this was brought up before, and we kind of mm -hmm. talked about it. <clears throat> but there, there will need to be a little bit of time for them. Sounds good. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anything else? I just had one more, one thing on the. Uh, I know that the developer withdrew the castle project, and uh, it wasn't. I mean, it's not necessarily regarding the project itself, but just the atmosphere and the surrounding of the project. Um, there were some of the things that happened around it were a bit not Lawrence. Um, I, I think we can behave a little bit better and, you know, treat each other with a little bit more civility. Not talking about us and the dais. I'm talking about in relation to um, the, the competing interest. So um, I would hope that everybody would realize that, you know, a lot of the times when people bring up projects like this or granted, there is, they're, they're, they're interested in doing things in their own perspective, but also for the greater good of Lawrence a lot of time. So if they would give them that grace and go into those conversations, willing to exchange ideas, I would appreciate it, so. Anything else? Uh, that brings us to city manager's report. 
Thank you. A pretty lengthy group of reports on here. Um, Some good work going on. Just most of these are just updates to you. Um, We don't need to have a discussion or necessarily do a presentation, but we did want to update them. The um, audit was uh, mentioned in the previous solid waste report. Um, It's just good practice to go back and find those things and we we catch them and clean them up. Other than that, I'll just stand for any questions you might have. I did want to say um, how nerdily I loved the parking uh, (laughs) update. Um, I know we don't have time to have a whole presentation about it, but um, I loved it ever so much. (laughs) Well, I would echo uh, a couple things about one. I, you know, I, I look forward to, you know, recommendations coming out of the new data that we're getting and, and what how that might change. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the second part of that, again, it relates to the development code. Um, <laughs> you know, there's discussion and there are a couple of the items that they've not yet taken up. And, I, you know, one one is, um, you know, the, the city, I mean, like neighborhood permits, parking permits, and, you know, I know there has been some discussion already, you know, especially if you're going to do things to increase density um, and maybe even, you know, people are talking about things like, you know, doing away with parking requirements to allow for density that also might have a complementary step of having permits, a permit process and how that might be tied together. So I think that, you know, something for again, might come up in the code process and I think we'll we'll hear about. So I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the discussion in that presentation, which I had not remembered about decriminalizing parking and moving that mm-hmm. to a different entity out of the municipal court. I think I'm interested in learning more about that. That that's, I had not focused on that before. So those are things I think, you know, to put on the agenda. So I thought that was a great report. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything else? That is a public comment item. Is there any public comment? Is there any public comment online? Seeing no hands raised, <laughs> Mayor. All right. Did you have something you were? No, I was just looking at the future agenda oh. items. I know, I know that Tony's working on the up, for the upcoming legislative year. Our <clears throat> Vegetative priorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that part. Do we, is that, do we think we'll have, well, of course we'll have it for the <laughs> year. <laughs> Are we, yeah, so it's just not listed on here. So I just wanted to make sure there's yes. a place for that. To- we're, we're bringing it forward. Um, the approach we're going to take is it'll be a more limited yes. scope um, than what you've seen where it's, many, 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 many items, many of which are also just part of the legislative um, recommendations of the uh, League of Municipalities. So we're going to reference that, but then kind of narrow this to things that we think are top priorities. But we should be bringing that pretty soon. Thanks. Calendar items? Anything needs to be added or changed? Mm, Not seeing anything. Y'all want to hang out here for a couple more hours just for fun? No, ma'am. What you got? Motion to adjourn. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Aye.
passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. That was super. Oh, that's.